Hello, welcome to the MJ Cast. I'm Jamin Bull. It is Saturday, the eighth of October, and I wonder who that is. Hey, 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 going? Q. It's Q. Oh, welcome back, buddy. Hey, man, I just thought I was going to uh, drop by and say g'day. Oh, man, great to have you here. Welcome back. It's been a while. What have you been doing? Unpacking. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Unpacking. So, yeah, moved house, and then we had a little week in KL uh, to recover, and uh, then we've been setting the house up and trying to get internet. Uh, shout out to my BFF, Aiden, that has set us up with a pretty decent temporary internet solution. Um, but been very happy with uh, your incredible output while I've been out otherwise sort of occupied in a way. Incredible stuff you guys have been putting out. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks, Q. Yeah, I've been a bit... Uh, <laughs> been a been bit, a bit busy. Been a bit busy and a little bit worried because <laughs> I don't know what you were going to say about the show length uh, of our last couple of episodes. A little bit long. Five hours and four minutes. Yes, well, well, uh, well actually, <laughs> it was a great show. Hearing from Charles and Sam was amazing. That was a really good episode. And then the episode uh, the other week with Jason was fantastic. I loved the discussion on the uh, most underappreciated Michael Jackson tracks. That was awesome. Ah, uh, thanks. Yeah, we've had a lot of fun and. Um the next few episodes we've got coming up are really good as well. Uh, but uh, just so the audience knows, you won't be back still for another couple of shows yet, right? That's right. So you're introducing today's show and the follow-up to that. Uh, and then I'll be back, plan to be back for our Thriller Night episode. Awesome. My favorite holiday of the year. Oh, it's, it's, it's always a toss-up between that and Christmas. I can never decide, but... <laughs> well, this one's like Michael's holiday, so yeah. That's right, that's right. We'll do it, we'll do it well. We will. All right, we've got a couple of interesting episodes locked in here for episode 41 and 42. We're trialling an all-new format on the MJ cast, and, and something that, Q, you and I have been talking a little bit about lately is what we can do when we want to do some really big discussion topics and get the news out of the way and kind of give the discussion topics the main sort of... Um, spotlight on the show and we came up with this concept of roundtable shows uh, where we get a sort of a panel of people together a panel of experts on a particular topic and just let them go to town and uh, we're introducing our very first uh, roundtable episode on the MJ cast uh, it's going to go over two episodes and it's all about Prince and Michael Jackson yeah this is going to be really exciting to hear um, I think this is a terrific discussion topic to actually debut this uh, concept, the roundtable discussion concept on. So, yeah, well done. Congratulations. Well, it wasn't all my idea. Actually, it was barely my idea at all. I mean, you and I have been talking about roundtable type shows for a while, but coincidentally, Casey Rain uh, came to me on Twitter a few weeks ago and pitched this idea with me saying, maybe we should do a Prince and MJ show. And it just seemed to fit. Um, and it grew and grew, and we got lots of participants coming from lots of different um, angles and, and backgrounds. I know that was hard for you. <laughs> I, I was watching all of the correspondence when I when I could, and yeah, you've been working on this for a lot. Everyone's been working hard to to get synchronized and yeah. uh, get this show on the table, so to speak. And here it is. And it's a shame you couldn't be involved actually on this one because I know you've actually had the the honor of seeing both Michael Jackson and Prince live. 
That's right, yeah. So for myself, um, listeners of the show would already know that I was an instant mega Michael fan since uh, his release of Black or White. But I used to do sort of concerts for the family to J5 stuff when I was a young young kid as well. I guess I would say that I was a casual Prince fan, probably since the 1989 album Batman, the, the soundtrack to the Tim Burton Batman film. And um, I guess I've always had a respect for his output and artistry. And then I was sort of uh, exposed to more Prince uh, and my respect grew for his stuff from um, my friendship with Paul Black. And it was awesome that Paul got to join you on the show. Yeah. Um, yeah. So being an 80s kid, for, for me, MJ, Prince and Madonna, they were the music trinity that I grew up with, you know, and with their sort of parallel paths and careers in many ways, there's so much to talk about. But I did get to see Michael twice live on his History World Tour in 96, and then one of those was from the front row. And I also saw Michael like at his Brisbane Hotel and Perth Hotels, things like that. And I did have the absolute blessing to see Prince live weeks before his passing, actually, on his Piano and Microphone World Tour. And, yeah, certainly beyond cemented my respect for Prince as an artist and was, yeah, sort of very one of those moments in life that you sort of turn a corner and just are just quite touched and moved by the greatness of his, his being and his art. Yeah. It's very special as well that you got to see him so late in his career. Like imagine if you'd missed that opportunity. That's why, well, not that I would ever have imagined that he'd be gone like the same as Michael, but that he came to, to my hometown that for the first time, I believe, you know, I was like, wow, this is really a once in a lifetime opportunity here. So I really should not miss this. So I was so grateful and so blessed that I did get that chance and that I didn't sort of sweep that under the carpet and go, oh, you know, I can't afford it at the moment, which, you know, so I just so grateful that I did have that chance. Yeah, super Super cool. And you mentioned just then uh, a couple of our participants that will be on the show. Of course, Paul Black is returning. Uh, he's done. Yay. A, yeah, he's, he's a great, great person to have on the show. And uh, he did such a great job in our past two shows and that we had him on, I think, episode 25 and another one as well. And the audience, our audience have loved him so much that we decided to bring him back on this show. Actually, as um, not only because he's had such a massive... Um, so many experiences around Prince and Michael, um, but because he's he's got a background in uh, media as well, and he's a really, really great natural sort of uh, host. Um, so we really wanted to bring him on board for this episode as a uh, moderator. In addition to Paul Black as the moderator, we've also got a few other participants in this show. We've got uh, Charles Thompson, who's come on. He's actually seen Prince live as well. Uh, we've got... Uh, Samar of the MJAP, another person who's seen Michael Jackson and Prince live. So great, great opinions coming from Samar. Uh, Casey Rain, uh, the person who originally came with the concept of the show to me. Uh, Kim Camellia. Uh, Kim is actually Casey's partner and also co-host with Casey of uh, the Prince Internet Sensation, The Violet Reality. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. And then I'm, I'm also there as well as the sixth participant of the show. The Violet Reality is able to be found on facebook.com slash the violet reality, twitter.com slash 
a violet reality and instagram.com slash the violet reality now what the violet reality is is actually basically a youtube channel uh where where casey and his partner kim both prince mega fans upload vlog style videos keeping you up to date with the latest news and discussion all around prince quite similar to the mj cast actually but smaller condensed episodes and with video as well all on youtube to check out so great great channel there So on this episode, we cover a lot of different topics. We actually kick things off by Paul Black uh, really asking each participant about their love of Michael Jackson and Prince separately and how we got into each artist and what we love about each artist. And then after we go around the table talking about those sort of things, we delve straight into that, these main sort of discussion topics about each artist. We talk about their influences and their early careers, uh, their creativity in terms of uh, studio work and musicianship. Also, we talk about, we have a comparative discussion around them both as live performers. Um, moving throughout the uh, episode as well and into the second episode we also cover them as uh, uh, cultural icons style and fashion icons and then we also have a conversation particularly in the second episode about uh, the similarities around the way they actually passed away which is a bit of a, a confronting sort of sad moment I guess in the show but very very interesting as well to listen to uh yeah Sounds incredible. I really am excited to hear both parts of these episodes uh, via iTunes. Um, I understand that the discussions were very detailed, Jamin. Yes, incredibly so. (laughs) Incredibly so. And I can imagine having uh, spoken to a lot of these people myself. A lot of detail would have been covered. So much so that the show notes are going to be a little bit different this episode. The show notes are... Google.com, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so if you hear something mentioned in the show that you want to know more about, we're sorry that there's no direct link to the 4 billion and trillion million amount of topics and, and interesting facts that were discussed. But whatever you want to know, just Google it and you are bound to find it. Because otherwise, poor Jamin would be working on this in like the year 2172, trying to get these <laughs> show notes up and running. Because... <laughs> In the so year thirty one twenty one, thirty one twenty one. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, or what twenty forty even at the, at the <laughs> earliest. Hunt on YouTube, go on Google, and there's your education and your research. That's your homework. Okay, we're not going to lay it out all. Give, we're not going to give you all the answers in the show notes this week. <laughs> well, I think this is going to be an incredible listen. And I think we're all going to really learn some stuff and and really get in deep. And I can't wait to listen myself because I wasn't actually there for the recording. So I'm really excited to, to tune into this episode. Uh, so all the best, everybody. Have a great time. And don't forget, tune in for part two. The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's that's one of my favorite things. I love you. <laughs> I love my fans. Just simply Michael Jackson. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop.
Well, how exciting that we can all be here. The first proper roundtable uh, episode of the MJ cast. Very, very exciting. And of course, just as Q and I spoke about, uh, this is an idea that we've had that's uh, going to expand into becoming um, roundtable shows for a lot of different topics in, in the future. But today, uh, we've got a very, very exciting one. The first part of a two-part series on Michael Jackson and Prince. And I've got to, I've got to thank uh, one of our six participants here, uh, Casey Rain. Casey, thank you so much for this idea. You came, uh, you came to me about, a, I think, a couple of weeks ago or maybe a little bit more with this, with this concept. So thank you very much. It's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, you're welcome. I've, uh, I, I've, I've always thought that, um, you know, lots of people both on in the Michael community and the Prince community need to be discussing this uh, subject and the contrast with, uh, you know, that level of uh, intellectualism and authority and you know you guys have, have proven with your show that that you you do that with such a range of, of topics relating to Michael so it's the perfect place oh thank you very much that means a lot and it's so exciting to see what you guys are doing with the violet reality as well um, so it's, it's great that we can we can both explore this together and of course you're here with your your partner as well Kim Camellia Kim how are you doing yes hi I'm doing fine that's great and welcome to the MJ cast thank you uh, we've also got some people returning back to the show, uh, some people we've had on before. Uh, we're here with Charles Thompson, our legal uh, correspondent, who talks a lot about the different legal aspects of the Michael Jackson fan world, but also happens to be a massive, massive Prince fan. He's spoken a little bit about his appreciation of Prince uh, in previous episodes. So, Charles, welcome back to the MJ cast. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on. We've we've also got Samar here, Samar of the Michael Jackson Academia Project, also a massive Prince fan. Uh, he was just recently on our uh, previous episode, episode uh, 39, I believe. So, Samar, welcome back. Hi, thanks, Chairman. Very nice to be here. Great. And, uh, of course, we have Paul Black here today. We're having a bit of black magic on the show. Paul's been on a couple <laughs> of uh, <laughs> previous uh, episodes we've nice. had where he's gone into a lot of detail about his experiences with Michael. But believe me, he's had just as many amazing experiences being a Prince fan. And, uh, interestingly, what we're going to do today, because because Paul has... I guess, um, a lot more experience as a Prince fan than myself and uh, has been co-host on a couple of previous episodes as well. Paul's going to take over the reins today in terms of moderating this roundtable sort of conversation just to keep things moving along really well. So, Paul, welcome to episode 41 of the MJ Cast. Thank you very much. This is pretty exciting, actually. We've been talking about this for a while now and trying to get uh, all all of these wonderful people in the same room, so to speak, at the same time. So it's pretty uh, pretty exciting to uh, finally get this show happening. So yeah, basically what we're doing uh, for everyone out there is is we're going to have uh, a roundtable. Like Jamin said, this is kind of a new concept uh, for us. And the way we're going to do it is uh, we've got a whole bunch of to different areas and topics to discuss and we've got all these great people that we're, uh, that we're all going to interact and share our thoughts and our experiences on uh, various topics as well as our own personal experiences or connections with both Prince uh, and Michael Jackson. So we're going to keep it fairly free form and we'll see how we go with this. Um, everyone uh, will chime in and uh, have their thoughts and we'll see where it takes us basically. So uh, yeah, I'm pretty excited, and uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be a, a really cool show, I think. So absolutely. Uh, so Jamin, I think we're ready to uh, kick it off, and um, basically what we're gonna start by doing is um, we're we're gonna sort of ask each person about uh, their their personal 
interaction or experiences or connections, we'll start with prints. And uh, everyone's just going to give us an idea of, of, of how they're connected or related to uh, Michael Jackson as a fan. Um, and uh, I'll probably kick things off just to give you an idea of the kind of things that uh, that I've done. And obviously, I've been on the show before, so you can always go back and listen to uh, some of my stories in detail. Later on in the show, maybe in the second part, we're actually going to delve into some of these personal stories as well. So, yeah, I mean, I've talked a lot about the Michael stuff. I guess in terms of Prince, I've been pretty major Prince fan since around, say, 89, 90. So starting with sort of the, the Batman soundtrack really is what really kind of got me into it. And then right through into Diamonds and Pearls. And, you know, by then I was kind of hooked. I've seen Prince actually, let's say, 22 times, which is wow. quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, that's not, that's like a, a range of things. So since about 2003, um, I saw his greatest hits tour, which was kind of the prelude to the musicology tour, which I actually think it was a better show because it was just purely greatest hits. And, and there was a certain way he did that show, which he modified. So I thought it was an amazing show, blew me away. And I've seen sound checks, I've seen after shows, I've seen like Tonight Show TV appearances, club shows, uh, and four of his recent piano and a microphone shows that he did in Australia, which was amazing. And also, I guess the reason I've seen him so many times is probably because he did 21 nights in Los Angeles at the Forum, and it was like 25 bucks a ticket for for most of it <laughs> unless you went vip which i did a few times as well so i saw like half of those shows as well i was also very fortunate to um attend a special live show at paisley park in minneapolis so that was pretty exciting we might talk a bit more about that later i was also we've told this story before invited from the audience to sing on stage with prince on two <laughs> occasions which was quite <laughs> crazy and you know had brief sort of meetings and interaction with uh with prince at, the, at these times so that's my Prince story or summary um we might uh flip over to kim so kim if you want to tell us a bit about your prince uh kind of experiences and connections that would be awesome yeah, so I've been a Prince fan ever since I was a toddler, so ever since I was really, really young, and the first video I ever saw of him was Little Red Corvette, and so I saw this man in this really, really shiny coat, and I was like, who is that? I want to know who this man is, and so ever since then, I completely fell in love with him, <laughs> so... um Yeah, so from then on, I obviously started growing up a bit more, and I started, you know, like, finding out what he was about and what his lyrics were about and I started understanding his lyrics better because I'm from Holland and so my first language is Dutch so I so through him he actually helped me to learn to speak better wow. English as well cool yeah great. and then so I think my main thing is that because of Prince I want to do music myself as well and I know that it's okay to express myself in the way I want to and I met my partner Casey because of Prince and I made a movement from Holland to the UK last year because of that. Nice, very <laughs> cool. Well that's a good segue into Casey. Do you want to tell us a bit about your connections and experiences with Prince? Yeah, absolutely. So um I mean, Prince for me was one of those artists that I was always uh, aware of since I was very, very tiny. But I would say I became a fan around uh, the year of 1999 because the Warners re-released the song, of course, uh, to cash in on it being that year. And so it got kind of a second wave of, of UK radio play. 
I mean, obviously, I already knew it, but like hearing it over and over again on the radio because I listened to a lot of radio, I was like, actually, wow, this song is, has so many more layers than than I ever thought. And also, Rave came out that same year, which is one of those albums that people either love or hate. For me, I was a huge hip hop fan, so I saw the album in the stores and I was like, "Oh, Chuck D's on it, Eve's on it. This must be really cool." <laughs> uh, and I picked it up and I listened to the title track, and that was what made me mm. like, "Okay." this guy can do so many different things like wow so yeah i, I was i was in 100 percent from from that point yeah my first opportunity to see him live was uh when he did 21 nights in london i went to a bunch of those a bunch of after shows i'd already been posting on on prince.org for pretty much every day for a couple of years by that point i'm a staff member and moderator there now um but that came through me being such a frequent uh poster on on the site uh, over the years, saw him 14 times, including uh, flying out to Vegas with my best friend for the Live Out Loud tour when when he just started with Third Eye Girl. Um, the I wrote the world's first review of 3121 after I went to the uh, the advance uh, record label party for it, which was about six weeks before the album came out. Uh, we weren't given the track titles or anything like that. We were just ushered into a room full of symbols all over the walls and played an album that nobody had heard um and then expected to kind of write about it so uh, i went straight home and wrote on the org about it and it turned out that pretty much everybody else there was like newspaper journalists so their reviews didn't come out for a few days or, or anything like that so uh unbeknownst to me it became my review was the first um which was pretty awesome uh, what else? I wrote a double-page spread last year for uh, Eastern Eye, which is a, a British uh, Asian newspaper. And for whatever reason, Prince acknowledged it on his birthday. He tweeted out the link to my article, uh, which was the only tweet that he made that day. Uh, some people listening to this may not know that after he became a Jehovah's Witness, Prince did not uh, acknowledge his birthdays ever. So the fact that he did that for my article was quite um, surreal, really. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was quite uh, proud of, of that. And after he, he passed away, uh, his two wives, ex-wives, Maite and, and Manuela, got in touch with me and asked me to contribute to the memorial program on behalf of the fan base. Um, so everybody else in there is, is people that worked with him or musicians and et cetera. Uh, you know, Barack Obama. And then there's my quote in there. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, yeah, we might very, have to hear. Very, um... very surreal. We might hear more about that st uh, that story in detail later on. I think sounds mm. pretty exciting. Um, okay, that's cool. So we might. Oh, um, and yeah, I, I talked to him and met him in 2007. That's my last point that I wanted to say. <laughs> yes, and we'll definitely be talking more about that in in probably the second half of the show, um, which is pretty exciting. All right. Well, we might hand over to Charles now. Charles, do you want to tell us a bit about your Prince experiences or connections? Sure. Um, I came to Prince via Michael Jackson because um, Michael Jackson, when I was a kid, and I would always hear Michael speaking about James Brown. And so as a teenager, I started going off and exploring James Brown through James Brown. Eventually, the path led to Prince. And um, so I became a, a huge Prince fan when I was in my early to mid-teens. Um, since that time, I've been lucky enough to see him live six times, three times in arenas and three times in, in small venues. Uh, and that included the, uh, the very last concert that he ever played on British soil, which was a, a charity concert at Coco for Autism Rocks in early 2015, uh, queued for 10 hours to get into that gig. 
I mean, that's really the, uh, I, I've never met him like Casey. I've never been on stage with him like you, Paul, but, um, <laughs> I was a huge admirer and I am a huge admirer. And, um, I was, I was very fortunate to get to see him as many times as I did. Amazing. Yes. Anyone who has seen Prince live, I mean, you can't even explain it. We'll go into more detail on that uh, in the future. But um, Sam, do you want to give us your rundown? Of course, yeah. So it's, we're only talking Prince at the moment, right? Yep. So, yeah, I became a Prince fan. So I, because of my age, I'm so much more older than the rest of you guys on the, on the show. So I, was a, I became a Prince fan around Purple Rain. So Purple Rain had come out, resisted, 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 because I was such a massive Michael Jackson fan at this stage had older siblings, older brothers, who would always kind of wave Prince over my head, uh, as as in, this is the real deal. This, this, this is the real deal. Forget Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson's, you know, uh, pop, kiddie pop kind of stuff. Prince is the real <laughs> deal. And they'd, they'd wave it over my head all the time, and it was so irritating. I was only like 11 or 12 years old. So it was, a, it was like an active uh, a, a revulsion towards Prince because I just couldn't tolerate anyone kind of coming close to michael jackson i was a kid at the time obviously and you know when you're a kid at that age you know all of these things are so much more important then uh i think i, I think he released i would die for you i'm not sure if it was released as a single but i vividly remember the video for some reason being played on top of the pops and it was just such the show um, the video they played was obviously the snippet from purple rain and i just remember thinking this is just incredible and you know, they pan over to the audience and the audience is just going mad. And it suddenly, that was a real awakening for me because I suddenly realized that I didn't have to choose. I could be a fan of both of them, which was a <laughs> massive revelation for like a 12 or 13 year old at the time. Because, um, you know, school, you know, you'd have arguments in the schoolyards about who was better, who was this, who was that, and who, you know, who was uh, the real deal, who wasn't. And I didn't have to choose. I could be a fan of both of them, which eventually I turned out to be. So I became a Prince fan many, many moons ago, back in the mid-80s, so probably about 984, 985-ish. So I haven't seen him live 14 times. I've seen him live four times, and I'm, I missed him so many times, and there was so, I had so many opportunities to see him. So I had an opportunity to see him at the Love Sexy Tour, 1988. I didn't go and see him. Wow. I did go and see Michael Jackson at the same time, at, during the same summer. I had an opportunity to go and see him. He was doing, I don't know what the tour was, but you know, they, they released that DVD of his Vegas show, yeah, um, Aladdin. Ala the Aladdin show. So he did a one-off show, I think it was, at the Hammersmith Apollo, or Hammersmith Odeon, as it was back then, in London. And I had an opportunity to go and see him then. Uh, I didn't. And Prince used to tour so regularly to this country, especially used to play London so regularly that you just never thought the time you know, wouldn't come where you wouldn't be able to see Prince. And then mm. obviously he didn't play for so many years. And then... When the 21 Nights thing came around, forget about it. I was first in line to get tickets. So went to two of those. <laughs> the first night in particular was one of the most exciting nights of my life. So, saw him twice on the 21 Nights show, on tour. Saw him at the round. What, so how, which way around was it? So we saw him at Coco. I, I went to a gig with Charlie at the Coco, Coco Club in London. He, he was supposed to play three shows back to back. And he ended up playing. So he played the first show. They booted all the audience out. We got into the second show. The third show was basically amalgamated to the second show. So we ended up seeing Prince for about four hours that night. What's so incredible about that is he'd already played two hours before we'd got in. So he'd played four yeah. hours for us in front of us. 
I remember being physically exhausted just being in the audience. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I think we've all been there. Well, yeah. just by standing up and being, you know, entertained yep. for four hours, I was exhausted. <laughs> and yeah, honestly, if he could, it was as if he could have carried on all night. And he was so incredible that night. I think, yeah. if I remember rightly, I think he ended with, uh, "How come you don't call me anymore?" And nice. you know, by that by that stage, because quite a few people had filtered out to try to catch the last tube home or the last train home. I was right next yeah. to the stage, and he was on the piano. He was right in front of me, and I've taken a few sneaky photos, which I shouldn't have, but um, <laughs> really, really kind of iconic images. And so we saw him then, and the last time I saw him was at the Roundhouse, again, after he'd just performed a show, which Charlie had just come out of. So Charlie had gone to see the first show he performed, came out, spoke to me about it, and then we went in. <laughs> and again, we got right to the front, and he was just phenomenal. And yeah. um, I actually went in with a friend of mine, uh, Dips, whose cousin, is this right, Charlie? His cousin was Prince's manager? His cousin was Kieran, the, um, his, his uh, booking agent, I believe. Was that her name? Yeah, yeah. Kieran, Kieran Sharma. Yeah, 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 so that's yeah. Dips' cousin. So we got in with him and ushered right to the front. We were literally right, right near the front. And Dips, who I don't think he'd been on the Hit and Run tour, so he hadn't seen any of the shows and had kept missing these shows. And he was behind me, I just remember <laughs> one moment where I think Prince was playing Let's Go Crazy. And in the back, just behind me, so Kieran's cousin is just behind me, shouting to me, he's shouting to me because the music was so loud, this is fucking amazing. And he's jumping up on my shoulders. And uh, <laughs> that, that was the last time we saw him, man. Honestly, it was just one hell of a show. He was just incredible. Almost got backstage that night. So Dips had VIP access, but Prince didn't hang around in the VIP. <laughs> so yeah. even though Dips got to be backstage, Prince wasn't there. But there were there were a lot of celebrities who were. There was so Dave Gilmore, he was there. I think um, a few other celebrities. There was the Radio One DJ Chris Moyles was there, but Prince was nowhere to be seen. Prince was out of there as soon as the gig was finished. Um, never got nice. to meet him, um, but always just been a massive massive fan of him massive champion of him as well always supported him and awesome. uh i actually i actually logged on to the org today just to just to kind of remember how long i'd been a member of the <laughs> prince.org <laughs> turns out i've been a member of prince.org for 12 years i don't post regularly i don't really log on that much as much as i used to but i logged on first time i logged on was 12 years ago which is some time ago so that's my prince there you go. That's awesome. And we'll probably get into more of those stories later. Let's jump over to Jamin. So, Jamin, you're primarily a Michael fan, and then you discovered Prince as well. Do you want to tell us a bit about your Prince connection? Yeah. Like, honestly, the truth is that I've only really been a Prince fan um, for a relatively short amount of time compared to everybody else. Um, I actually became a Prince fan in uh, 2006. Uh, basically, that was during the time when 3121 was just coming out. It's by far my favorite Prince album, actually. Uh, and I heard, I first heard music from it when I was listening to a great radio station in Australia called Triple J. And uh, they they usually play a lot of alternative music, but for some reason they were really right into Prince during this time, and they were playing the single uh, Black Sweat. Uh, and heavy, heavy mm. rotation. And it just resonated with me so much. I loved the song. Um, I guess it was during a time when there was a real sort of lull in uh, great music coming from Michael Jackson. It was during a, <laughs> a difficult time in his career. And a lot of us MJ fans were like, oh, geez, we just want more music. 
And uh, I happened to hear this Prince song on the radio and I was like, this is incredible. I love it. Um, so that was the the time when, yeah, I really started to take notice of him. And, and I guess throughout the years since then, I've, I've kept tabs on what Prince was doing and where he was up to and what sort of music was coming out. I never got the chance to see him live, uh, unfortunately, but I always kept a, my, you know, my ear to the ground with what was coming out. And I usually did that through mutual uh, Michael Jackson and Prince um, fan friends. Because a lot of the time you're friends with a Michael fan who happens to also be a Prince fan at the same time. And uh, it was just fascinating to see him, I guess, put out such great material all the way through his career, um, you know, right up until the very end, which is, you know, one of the, the differences, I guess, between him and Michael. But um, right up until just that last moment, he was still performing so strongly, still putting out great music. And even his his very last album, um, Hit and Run Phase 2, is just uh, Q actually bought it bought it for me as a, as a gift and it arrived in the mail uh, literally the day before he passed away. And uh, phenomenal, wow. phenomenal album. So yeah, that's my history as a Prince fan. I'm still quite a new Prince fan, actually. And, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation to learn as much as I can because um, I'm just at the beginning of my fandom, I think, of Prince. Well, by, by the end of this, we'll have converted you <laughs> a little bit further, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh, jump over to talk a bit about our experiences or connections uh, with Michael Jackson. Um, and again, I'll kick it off just to give you a bit of an idea. Um, some of this I've already spoken about on the show before. Feel free again to go back and listen to those episodes. Uh, I've been a major Michael Jackson fan since probably before Prince by a few years. So it was almost the same time, you know, 89-ish. Um, and uh, yeah, I sort of basically saw Moonwalker and, you know, that was kind of it for me. Um, I've seen Michael live three times on the History World Tour, plus kind of a fourth show where I was outside the stadium kind of listening, <laughs> um, which kind of counts in my mind. Uh, I've met Michael a few times. I was very fortunate to wow. meet him inside a hotel and uh, I used to be a tribute performer. So I, I performed a brief dance performance for him inside the hotel and then walked around the hotel lobby with him before and after some of the shows and did the autograph thing, that kind of thing. Um, and I saw all of his appearances in Sydney, Australia when he was here in 96, including the Sydney Opera House Civic Reception, which is kind of like basically like an award show type scenario where he came out and gave a speech presented by an award, uh, presented with an award. Um, and also Michael's hotel arrival was a big, huge event that they staged to have, you know, him arrive and all the fans there and they had a big, they made a huge deal out of it. And that was the first time I actually saw him and, and met him briefly with an autograph, um, there. Um, I also attended the ghosts premiere here in Sydney, uh, in Michael's presence. So we sat in the theater mm. with him and his dancers and crew, and he was like four rows behind us. So it made it very difficult to watch the show you wanted to watch ghosts we'd never seen it in its entirety but michael's right behind you and you're trying to sort of you know do a bit of both um and then on the way out of that there was a big security crush and i ended up sort of getting right next to him and sort of meeting him again and i was right there and then security went nuts and then i was kind of caught in this crush where they tried to usher him out um so that was kind of like a big huge deal for me being a fan the whole tour that he came here in australia in 96 um and then cut to many years later i was um in los angeles over there for four years and um that was right at the time when michael passed away so i did attend the michael jackson memorial staples center which um we talked a bit about in the uh, recent june 25th anniversary 
uh, show. Um, so that's my general summary of, of, uh, of Michael experience. Let's go around again. Let's start with Kim again. Do you want to tell us about your Michael experience or connections? Yes, of course. So I've been a fan of Michael since I was really, really young as well. Uh, the first Michael track I've ever heard was Smooth Criminal. And from then on, I was just like, wow. And um, ever since I was a teenager, around 13, 14 years old, I was very, very involved with um, the Dutch Michael fan community. And so we, as that little community, would always have these massive parties on his birthday. And we would meet up um, around the history statue that is in a Dutch city called Best. And so we would do these kind of things. And um, because of that, I um, got to know one of my friends and she was also a really big 3T fan. And then after this one um, memorial we had for Michael on June 25th in 2015, she said that 3T was going to come to Holland on the 26th of June. And so she was like, do you want to come with me to the airport and actually meet them? So that's what we did. <laughs> we stood up really, really early in the morning because she lived quite close to the airport and then we hopped on a train at about seven in the morning and then we went to the airport waited for about two to three hours to just catch a little glimpse of 3t but what we didn't know then was that they were shooting their sort of reality show at the time so when we got there there was a whole tv crew there and they made us sign like little tv releases and mm. then we met 3t but we were also on tv at the same time wow. so i mean one of those episodes yeah Fantastic. Very cool. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, Casey, do you want to give us your rundown on your Michael connections? Sure. So um, I, uh, like like Paul, I, I became a fan after seeing Moonwalker, but um, I was probably about two years old when it came out. And when most children have kind of cartoons and whatnot on videos, I, I don't know how it happened, but I, my first video that I had w was Moonwalker. And I used to watch it just day in, day out, almost the day didn't ever go by where I, where I wouldn't watch it. And um, something that most people don't really know about me is that I had a very traumatic childhood. Um, uh, I lost my mother when I was five. Um, and Michael was the kind of person that I held on to to get through this extremely challenging um, childhood. And so in in the 90s and when I was in primary school, obviously everyone knows that the British media went through this phase where day in, day out, they would be slamming Michael like on, on the front pages of a very newspaper. And so I found myself in this position where I would be defending him every day at school. And, and I was a scrawny kid, but if you said something about Michael, you'd better be ready to fight me about it. So, so, so that was what my childhood was like. And then I, I found out in, in early uh, 97 that he was coming here for the history tour. And uh, I just begged and pleaded. My dad, I was like, oh, I have to go. I have to go. And uh, he, he wouldn't he wouldn't commit to saying yes. And and then he surprised me a few weeks later saying, hey, guess what? I got you guys tickets to, to go. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so he took me and my sister to go. And it was uh, needless to say, a very, very memorable uh, day. And one of the one of the few things that I sort of vividly remember from from that time in my life. And of course, being a Michael fan, um, I, I was so sort of I had such an appetite for for Jackson family stuff that I became a Janet fan. I became a 3T fan. I became a Jackson 5 fan and anything from anything and everything I could get my hands on from from any member of the Jackson family. I would I would try and do um, I would go to record fairs with my older cousins and buy old Motown vinyls and, and things like that. Um, 3T, I have every 3T single that came out from uh, the first album, and I saw the Brotherhood tour as well in the same year. Um, so yeah, so that was, and and then um, 
I guess Invincible happened and I did like the album, but then everything seemed to quieten down right after that. Mm. Um, I went to a couple of fan events. Um, Obviously, when when the trial uh, ended, there was the celebration party in in London um, that Adrian Grant hosted or or co-hosted. So I went to that. Yeah. Um, Oh, and, and one quite interesting thing that happened was that when this track appeared on MySpace, which was called No Friend of Mine by an artist called Temperamental, and it had these Michael vocals on it that nobody had heard. Praz Michelle from the Fugees was also on that song. Uh, my manager of, of my band, I'd already ha- I had a record deal uh, with my own band by this time with, uh, with Sony. And our manager was, um, he was one of the Fuji's main uh, management while they were together. After they'd split up, he was looking after Lauren and Praz. Um, he passed my details on to, to Universal, who randomly called me one day, basically trying to find out if they could release this song. Uh, and I was like, no. <laughs> and they were like, well, can can you can you try and find some concrete information about where this came from? And I was like, well, uh, I'll do my best. And and Praz had no idea because he had, he had had the song uh, just sent to him by this random temperamental guy. I, there was radio silence from whoever that guy was. Um, and, and, you know, I told him, look, these vocals are most likely stolen. It's almost guaranteed that they were obtained in some kind of shady way. Yeah. You guys are opening yourselves up for a world of hurt if you try and release this song officially. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> that was quite an interesting one. <laughs> wow. All right, cool. So, Charles, you've spoken a bit before about uh, your Michael experiences. Do you want to sort of give us a recap or fill in some of the blanks there? Yeah, so I basically just did a whole show like four weeks ago, episode 39 with Sam, where I told my fan story in detail. But um, essentially, I became a fan when I was about seven years old, saw Michael live when uh, I was nine. I saw him at Wembley on the History Tour. Um, I then became uh, an active member of the online fan community in 2001, uh, pre-Invincible, and remained an active member of the fan community right up until after he passed away. Since he passed away, I was um, I was training to be a journalist in the last years of his life, and I actually graduated from university with my degree in journalism three months after he passed away. Um, and since then, I've been involved in uh, quite a number of projects, uh, writing about him for Huffington Post, South News, for various books and uh, other outlets, which everybody's fairly well aware of because it's all been discussed in a lot of detail on the show before. Cool. All right. Excellent. And Sam, you're in the same boat. We kind of heard a lot of your stories in that same episode, but uh, do you want to give us the rundown? Yeah, so uh, I became a fan when I was 11 years old, 10 or 11 years old. It was the, the night after the Thriller video premiered and in the uk ever since then i was I've, I've been a fan ever since then and saw him many times saw him on i say it's my first ever concert i went to it was the bad tour i saw him at wembley stadium on the bad tour but i think i actually went to a few asian concerts prior to that but that was my first kind of major pop star concert um saw him again on the dangerous tour three times and then i saw him on the history tour we also saw him, uh, I was standing behind Charlie, actually, at the O2 press conference. I think that was the last time I saw him. Have been very active in the fan community for many, many years, both before Michael passed away and then even more so afterwards, trying to kind of maintain some hold of his fan community and the legacy of his 
actual music and his actual uh, career and where he's you know his posthumous legacy should be going so that's that really and if people want to hear the rest of the story they can listen to episode 39 i think i think it's episode 39 yeah it is very cool all right jamin do you want to give us a bit of a recap yeah, I mean, I've done this many times on the show, and if you go back and listen to our test episode, episode zero, you can actually hear all about my story um, in detail, but I'll do it quickly now. Basically, I became a massive fan of Michael Jackson uh, in late 2001. Uh, I remember the Madison Square Garden show, the 30th anniversary celebration was being broadcast around the world, and it was uh, shown in Australia, and I sat down and watched it with my family just you know, basically on a whim thinking, oh, I'd like to know a bit more about this guy. You know, you hear his name all the time for different reasons and, um, you know, whether it be just conversation between friends or whatever. And I, I put the show on and, and uh, you know, watched all the tribute acts leading up to Michael and it was a giant build-up. And and uh, then when the Jacksons came out on stage and performed for the first time in so many mm-hmm. years, it was, uh, you know, it just took my breath away, totally blew me away. And uh, that's the portion of the that particular show, actually, that I think... Um, represents Michael really well as a live performer, his uh, performance with the Jacksons. And it was it was wonderful mm-hmm. to watch, wonderful. Uh, instant mega fan from then on. And uh, it was, and then, of course, Invincible came out soon after. I remember going to a record store and putting earphones on and, and firing it up in one of the discmans they had uh, permanently attached to the, <laughs> the desk in the, uh, the record yeah, store. I and uh, I listened mm-hmm. to Unbreakable and, and I thought, wow, this is, this is really, really special stuff. And, yeah, I became a mega fan. And obviously, it was a bit of a bit of bad timing, really, because we all know that after two thousand and one, uh, for the next eight years, Michael went through probably what we could argue were the the most difficult eight years of his life. Definitely the dif- most difficult mm. decade, um, and obviously it resulted in his eventual death. And uh, during that time, it was it was very very challenging as a fan. I think we could all agree with him going through mm-hmm. his um, child molestation allegations and trial, and uh, you know. There was hope at the end of him coming back, and we were all looking forward to that so much. And especially those of us who became fans during Invincible, um, were so excited for that to to finally get to experience what everybody else on this panel has had experienced. Um, I think during mm. their their time as fans, and obviously that never happened. And um, so it was really it's a bit of a sad story, I guess, um, for us as fans. But after he died. Uh, that's that's the time where my fandom really kicked into high gear, interestingly. Um, some people, it went the other way. For me, it's become uh, a massive commitment um, on my part defending Michael because, as we know, since he passed away, there's been some very contentious things happen in his posthumous reality uh, in terms of his estate mm-hmm. and legacy. And I feel like the fans now have a very serious job to do in terms of defending Michael. And that's what we try to do on the MJ cast. Not only do we defend Michael and and discuss his truth behind his artistry, but we love talking to people that knew him and worked with him and, and, and explore his artistry. And Q and I, one of my closest friends, Q, um, you know, obviously got together to start the MJ cast and we've had so much fun doing it over the past couple of years and it's become a massive part of our lives and, and uh, has really um, gone on to do some good things, I think. So, yeah, I'm excited to push the boundaries of what we're doing at the MJ cast to, to get into this roundtable sort of sort of stuff and that's the next chapter for us, I think. So, yeah, very, very exciting things. All right. Well, with that in mind, uh, to kick this whole discussion off, what we're going to do is we're going to go around to each person and we're going to ask a couple of questions. The first question that we're going to get everyone to answer 
uh, is basically in the simplest terms, tell us why you like Michael Jackson and why you like Prince in the same answer. Um, so I might kick it off just to give you a bit of an idea again. In the simplest of terms, to me, Michael is magic. Michael is, in my mind, he's a magician. He's an artist. He's a magician. And he creates magic and makes you feel things in a way that very few, if any other artists do. Mm-hmm. So I, I look at Michael as a magician. Now, I look at Prince as a musician. To me, Prince mm-hmm. is music. So if Michael is magic, Prince is music. He's just pure, pure music. Um, that's not to say that Michael isn't a musician and all those things, but that's just how I see it. I look at the magic that Michael creates that just is electrifying. And then I look at Prince, the way he just creates music, you know, every day of his life, he just lived and breathed music. So in in, in short terms, that's pretty much how I would sort of look at it. Um, so what do you think, Kim? Well, first of all, I think that it's really hard for me to give a short answer on this one because I could go on about it for hours and hours and hours, but I won't do that. <laughs> so I think what I like, why I like Michael, like you said, Michael is an entertainer. Michael just mesmerizes you at the moment that you see him, that you watch one of his performances. Like he sort of like has you in a grip and you just will not take your eyes off of him when you're watching him. And you can and his music just has so much soul in it and it's just he's it's just beautiful. And the other thing I really, really like about him is that no matter what he went through and no matter what people did to him and put him through, he always, always, always stayed humble and kind hearted. Yes. And so Prince to me is it's just phenomenal how many instruments the man can play and how amazingly he plays guitar and how he has always stayed really really true to himself and his songwriting is just amazing and I think what I like about Prince the most is that he was such an individual like he was not afraid to show his feminine side as well and I think for many many men out there that have a feminine side to them as well that is really encouraging to see Prince doing that and still being admired by so many women all around the world and then while he was doing that he was also empowering women and that is what I love about him. Awesome. Great answer. Casey, let's talk about yeah. how you like Michael and Prince. So I, I often say to people that I think both Prince and Michael Jackson are 95% of a complete pop star. And the 5% that each is missing is the thing that the other excels at, that the, that the one doesn't do. Um, so they're both as close to perfect to me as, as anyone has ever been. Um, Michael, I think no matter what you know he he would have done in his life if he would have not been an artist he would have excelled in in entertaining people no matter what path he went down you know he he could just he just was entertainment i mean it it almost didn't matter you know whether he was a song that he was doing was focusing on the vocals or, or the dancing or the stage show he put on or a video or anything it would always be entertaining. I mean, that was that was a fact, and 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 that's what I love about him. Um, as for Prince, uh, as everyone has said so far, he is the epitome of of the word music and, and musician. It just ran through his blood. He, it almost seemed completely effortless for him to mm-hmm. just do something fantastic on on any instrument, or y- you know, you could. You could put Prince in a room with any instrument, it seems, and he would just be able to deliver you something that you'd never heard before with whatever it was. Um, 
I mean, he's more well-rounded than perhaps any any musician that's ever lived. And that's why I love him. Absolutely. All right, Charles, what do you think? I would definitely agree with what Casey just said, that uh, Prince is probably more well-rounded than any other musician I've ever heard of. I think... um, I think it's obvious that both of them were incredible artists, albeit that they were different types of artists. I mean, Prince was very much an individual as an artist. You could put Prince, as Casey says, into a room with 10 instruments and a soundboard, and he would come out with an album. Michael was not that kind of artist. Um, they they worked at different rates. They worked in different ways. Um, I think that uh, Prince probably had the um, the longer peak produced more and more creative work. I think for me, something though which um, sets them apart from other artists, I see them both as very heroic figures. In addition to being incredible artists, both of them had tremendous courage and both of them came through terrible traumas and survive them to an extent i mean michael you could argue didn't survive it so well but um you know with prince i think one of the things that i love the most about prince is his courage firstly his courage in uh taking on the music industry and he did um forge significant change in the music music industry he did um set an incredible example and he opened a door that others walked through. Uh, Prince also had courage in the sense that he, uh, unlike Michael, was not governed by how many units something was going to sell. I mean, my favourite Prince album is uh, is called The Rainbow Children. It's a jazz funk concept album about Jehovah's Witnessism, uh, which was released in an era when Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears were were riding the top of the charts. This was never going to be an album that was going to be a commercial success, you know, but Prince didn't care. That was the kind of artist that he was. Similarly, he was not afraid to go on a tour and say, listen, I'm not pay- I'm not playing any hits. If you want to hear a hit, don't come to this tour because you're not going to hear one. Michael would never have done something like that. And then, of course, Michael was a heroic figure in a different way to me. I mean, he he did take on the music industry in a similar way. But you also have his um, trials and tribulations, most notably the uh, the 2005 criminal trial. I remember after he died, there were a lot of people who said, well, I just hope all the negativity will be forgotten and that only the music will be remembered. And that used to aggravate me tremendously because for me, um, Michael's tribulations and what was done to him and the ordeal that he was put through is every inch as important as his artistic legacy um, is an important he is an important historic figure what was done to him was atrocious and it's something that needs to be remembered and needs to be documented mm. and for surviving that to me he is a hero um, so so for me it's is twofold both of them are incredible artists and both of them for me were heroes. Fantastic. All right, Sam, so why do you like Michael Jackson and why do you like Prince? Uh, those are so, such good answers. It's really hard yes. to stop any of them. Um, <laughs> I'm with you, man. <laughs> um, there, there's things I've always thought about both of them. I'll try to make it as kind of brief as possible. I always thought 
that what Michael Jackson had, it was impossible to teach someone, right? I don't think you could ever have had a child like that, taught them music or taught them how to sing, taught them how to dance, and for them to turn out the way he did and perform the way he did. I don't believe what he was able to do is able to be learned at school, right? Mm. Whereas with Prince, however phenomenal an artist he is, however amazing a musician he was, however incredible a talent he was, I believe it's possible to have learned his skills. I'm a massive fan of both of them. What you have to understand is, again, not only did they have their own personal trials and tribulations, these were two black men. And they were the two biggest artists the world has probably ever seen. Um, people will talk about Elvis, people will talk about the Beatles, but in hundreds of years' times, people will still be talking about Michael Jackson and Prince. And you couldn't have one without the other. I mean, Michael could have survived, you know, in, throughout the 80s, but who? you need a challenger. Muhammad Ali needed Joe Frazier. You know, you need to be challenged and tackled and, you know, pushed around and have someone kind of on your tail to kind of make you progress. You you listen to the Bad album compared to the Thriller album, you can kind of hear the effects Prince was having on Michael. Just look at Michael from Thriller to the Dangerous album. Just look at his physicality. Look what he looks like. Compare it to what Prince lo was looking like. You know, there's no doubt they were kind of, you know, influencing each other in some p particular ways. Prince was just a phenomenon. I mean, I, I love him so much. And again, what Charlie said, courage is one thing, but there's a line in a George Michael song. The song is called Freedom. And he says something along the lines of, um, about his own talent. He says, What's, I can't remember what the lyric is now. And he says something about, uh, he, he has faith in his own sound. Got to have faith in my sound. And you can only live the life Prince had. You can only wait out the Warner Brothers contract if you have faith in your own ability to be able to come back years later, write and record incredible material, perform fantastic shows, if you have that much faith in your ability. And if you don't have that faith in your ability, you'd be panicking, trying to release whatever you could with whichever label you could on, you know, and perform wherever you were getting gigs. He never did that, and he never, both of them never sold themselves short, which is really admirable in a very, very corrupt industry. So, you know, and I was lucky enough to be at an age during the 80s when they were both kind of riding high and, you know, knocking each other over the top of the charts. <laughs> um, it's really hard to explain how amazing and how brilliant these two guys were. Yeah, well, you've done a pretty good job so far. <laughs> um, cool. <laughs> Jamin, it's all you. Yeah, well, I guess with, with Michael, for me, the, the two things that stand out the most, uh, well, first of all, the challenges that he faced and and really overcame. So, you know, he was a young black, you know, American growing up in a country that really wasn't uh, allowing success for people like him. And he, he took that opportunity and totally, you know, took the music industry to a whole other level with what he was doing with him and his brothers, his, his whole family. And so that was one of the first significant challenges I think he faced really in his life, aside from just being a child star, um, which in itself is a massive thing. You know, other other challenges, for example, work that he wanted to do in the 80s, um, they're not being platforms for what he really wanted to do, such as film um, and, and, and putting music uh, and, and combining it with film to create new sort of mediums. And that's something he really... 
uh, he took that challenge on and took the industry to another level again. And uh, that, that medium has never really been the same since then. And then, of course, we could talk about all the sort of challenges around what he faced in, in the 90s as well with perceptions on him uh, in terms of his, uh, his own uh, personality. So I guess there's the way he took situations on in his life, overcame them, and then um, used those opportunities to take the, in, the whole industry to another level is the, the first aspect that I love about Michael. Um, the second aspect is his ability to, uh, I guess, um, take a product or take, take a, a concept or a product or a song or an album or a film or whatever and have it and, and, and have it so amazing that it be successful on a scale that's never happened before. And that that's that interests me as well in terms of his, his the the scale of success that he kind of had, whether it be Thriller, uh, obviously being the most uh, successful album of all time, um, and and we could go through a whole list of achievements that he had in that kind of way. But it it wasn't just his music in a sense wasn't really just uh, sort of at face value, even though he was the king of pop, you wouldn't call him his music. Uh, I guess, frivolous or two-pop because he was incorporating all these incredible sort of influences and styles and, and things that had come before him into these packages that he would sell to millions and millions of people. So I guess I appreciate that a lot. His ability to take, uh, he was like, um, he would he would focus all of this great um, art that came before him and focus into pop sort of packages that would have massive massive success which i really appreciate as well in terms of prince um it's it's different again for me what i appreciate about him is not so much the i don't know the the worldwide commercial success he had um but more so the versatility in that every time you listen to a different prince song or every time you you engage with a, a different piece of art from prince everything would be completely different and he wouldn't have um you know, with Michael, you could almost guess what he was going to do next sometimes. We knew Invincible was going to have a very R&B kind of sound. We knew that was going to happen. With Prince, you never know what's coming next, um, mm. which is really, really fascinating to me, just how, how bold he was in exploring different areas and challenging what people expected of him. So, yeah. Cool. One of the things that we are trying to also do with this show is uh, introduce fans. So maybe if you're a Michael fan, you haven't really discovered Prince, sort of hear a little bit about, you know, maybe why Prince is, is someone that you'd want to look into as an artist and vice versa if you're, if you're a Prince fan and you've never really got into Michael as much. Um, so the next question we're going to ask is, is, is a good way for fans who may not have discovered the other artists to get an idea of the kind of stuff you might start with in terms of their, their, their artistry. So we're going to talk about you know, your favorite songs, albums, the era of that artist or performances, things like that for both Michael and Prince. And for me, in terms of Michael Jackson, like I said, Moonwalker was really what got me uh, into Michael. And that whole package of Moonwalker covers, you know, a whole range of stuff. So my favorite album of Michael Jackson is definitely the Bad Album. To me, it's just... You know, it's, that's the era for me that was like my favorite. I'm definitely an 80s Michael Jackson fan. I love all of Michael's catalog and it'll be the same with Prince, but I'm just trying to hone in on if I had to really pick, you know, the whole the old desert island thing, you know, <laughs> what is your absolute, what would you take to a desert island if you could only pick one um, era? So the era for me is 80s Michael Jackson. So 
Billie Jean, to me, is probably the most amazing song he's ever created. It's pure genius simplicity and the performance, everything wrapped into it. To me, that's just, you know, sublime. But yeah, in terms of, of the bad album as a whole, you know, Another Part of Me is one of my favorite tracks. The live performance of that is just probably, if I had to say, go and watch and learn about Michael, what was he like, who was he, how did he perform? Possibly the Another Part of Me live video that they put together from the 88 tours. Oh, that's right up there. Man in the Mirror, the way they put that together at the start of Moonwalker is probably the best representation. (laughs) That's really where I completely fell in love with Michael. It was almost like I'd heard about Elvis and, you know, all of these, these icons, the Beatles and Elvis. And then I saw this man in the mirror and the way they'd edited that together with all of the, the, the emotion of the, the performance and the impact that it had and the way the fans and the people and just the way he performed, I was like, oh my God, this guy is bigger <laughs> than anybody who's ever like, and the effect he has on people. So that man in the mirror performance, the way they put that together, come together, the end of Moonwalker, you know, mm-hmm. Smooth Criminal, the video for that incredible Dirty Diana, The Way Make Me Feel, all these songs, all these videos definitely is kind of my sort of favorite sort of stuff of, of Michael. And so that's my era. And, you know, all those performances and things are just amazing. Mm-hmm. And it comes to Prince, again, I'm definitely an 80s kind of Prince fan, like my preferred era is sort of, well, probably actually late 80s uh, on Prince. I mean, I believe Purple Rain is probably the greatest album of all time, full stop, because (laughs) it's just such a perfect album. Like, it's like every song and the way it's just sort of almost like a pure live, you know, I mean, Thriller, for example, was like very much conceived and created and it was artistic genius that was created Mm. whereas purple rain it was almost like yep i'm just going to put down what i feel and almost in a live fashion and it's very pure so Mm -hmm. to me it's hard to go past that album but then i'm a huge fan of things like the group some of the stuff off graffiti bridge these in the temple possibly one of my favorite print songs the question of you is unbelievable joy and repetition the beautiful ones from purple rain Mm -hmm. um the song The Love We Make from Emancipation, and I've seen him do that live. It's just unbelievable. Um, Curious Child from that album is also a favorite of mine. So that's kind of my favorite sort of Prince era stuff. Uh, right through also into sort of Diamonds and Pearls. I love the stuff of Batman. Um, <laughs> And one of my favorite performances of Prince was actually the Arsenio Hall show stuff he did for the for the um, Diamonds and Pearls album. He does a medley there at the beginning of the show that just, to me, sums up a lot of what he can do in terms of being pure pop. Like, I was just, I just remember being blown away by that. So if you haven't seen that performance, that's definitely one to check out. It's pretty impressive. So, and then obviously I love a lot of his other catalog and, and everything that both artists have done, but if I had to really hone it in and pick, that's probably the kind of stuff that I would sort of say mm. I love the most. Um, all right, we'll go around the table again. Uh, so Kim, what do you think your favorite sort of songs, era, albums, performances of each artist? 
Yes. Okay. So I'm going to start with Michael. I think my favorite Michael Jackson album is definitely Dangerous, because <laughs> um, yep. I just I just love the how how like raw he sounds on a lot of the songs, and um, I love 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 how he was doing new Jack Swing at the time. It's actually one of my most favorite genres of music because it's so happy, it's so uplifting, and obviously Dangerous has these empowering songs like keep the faith and of course black or white with that amazing video clip and also the extended video clip which caused quite a bit of controversy because he had like the little panther dance bit that you would know when you're an MJ fan where he was smashing up the car and things like that and they later on actually cut that bit out of the video clip when uh, they would show it on tv so it was a bit too controversial there for everyone but um on like the I think they put it back in, actually, on the Michael Jackson's Vision DVD. So I think that's quite a good thing if you have that. So, And I think my other favorite MJ album is the other one that he pretty much did in the 90s, which is History. And I think I love that one the most because of the lyrical content. I mean, if you listen to a song like Money, then it's just the way that he's addressing things are actually mattering. Like, you know, how, like... how. It really reflects back on him, like how they basically wanted money from him and things like that. And then like later on how, you know, how all these trials happen. And in the end, it was just all because Michael was this big, big, big star in this phenomenon. And everyone obviously wanted something from him and he was really rich. And so they wanted to take money from him like that. And I think it's really unfair. And so I think that if you really want to get into Michael when you're a beginning Michael Fenner if you want to like know the depth of him you should really really listen to history and then I think one of my favorite songs actually is Blood on the Dance Floor because it came out exactly a month after I was born <laughs> so yeah what Blood on the Dance Floor did you say came out after you were born yeah just a month after I was born <laughs> well, how, how, old, how old am I man <laughs> <laughs> I remember it too <laughs> 97 woo <laughs> But yeah, so, okay, so now, in terms of Prince, that is just, I, I don't know where to begin. I love every single Prince album he's ever made. <laughs> I know, it's hard, isn't it? Yeah, but I think my favorite Prince era is definitely Dirty Mind to controversy, that kind of era, so um, the 80s. But I think mostly it's the 90s, so where you had albums like Rave, and you had Graffiti Bridge, and Diamonds and Pearls, and you had Emancipation. And I think... Mainly, Emancipation really grew on me over the past couple of years because um, as I grew to be a bit older, I would be able to understand like the lyrics, like what he was speaking about and things like that. And I w I'm just like, the older I became, the less I was that interested in like how uplifting the music was, but I was more interested in the lyrical content of that music. Of course, I love a good beat here and there, but I'm really interested in how an artist writes their lyrics so therefore i think emancipation is definitely one of my favorites but i cannot forget to mention sign of the times and its title track sign of the times because that is yep. just phenomenal absolutely all right casey um so let's i mean starting starting with michael like 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 uh paul said moonwalker was my entry point so i have a huge amount of sentimentality for for the bad era and i mean that that shot in in the man in the mirror segment where they pan out and you just see the biggest crowd you've ever seen in your entire <laughs> life it's like what yeah. what is going on and mm. um, yeah. the extended the extended smooth criminal video that's in moonwalker when you've got interpretive dance stuff going on like what pop artists were doing that like i mean especially when we were kids you 
you were seeing all this really advanced artistry that that you never you didn't even know what it was but you just thought it was just cool and just amazing um so so yeah bad era is definitely my sentimental um favorite but i would also like to 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 point out that i think it's criminal how much history is underrated uh by the general public Mm. in the sense that I mean, I, I remember the battle for, for the Christmas number one in 1995. I remember watching it on TV and then they announced that Earth Song was, was number one. And obviously, at the time, we were just like, yay, Michael won, woo. But thinking about it, how, how often do you hear environmentalism as the subject of a number one pop song? Exactly. Like, yeah. that, that doesn't happen. I mean, uh, anyone who's known me for a while has known I've been, I've been vegan for uh, seven years. And so... Uh, a lot of events and activism that I go to, you know, circles around environmentalism as as one issue, and that environmentalism doesn't get brought up in pop culture. It just doesn't. Nobody wants to address it. So to have a number one song at Christmas, that was just a phenomenal moment. Um, as well as that, you've got seriously addressing big money uh you know to the point where he was calling out all the million the millionaires and billionaires at the end of the song trump um (laughs) yeah fuck donald trump Um, (laughs) (laughs) just thought i'd throw that in there um and 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 of of course the, the you know the serious serious racism you know they don't care about us is probably the greatest song about racism that's ever ever been made you know um certainly you know, I think everybody would would agree that it's top five, even if people are not Michael Jackson fans. The, the impact of that is just on another on another level. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so so that's that's where I kind of stand as as a sort of two sides of 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 my favorite Michael uh, eras. Um, with Prince, I would say uh, Sign of the Times is my favorite era. Um, if I had to pick just one, and the reason for that is. Again, what it what it often comes back to um, f- with Prince for me is the range. So the range of styles uh, that he did on that album is you can't compare anything to it. I, I don't know if any other pop album with that many different sounds and styles and genres on on one record. And and for me, what's even more interesting about that is that Sign of the Times is an incomplete vision. Um, Prince submitted a triple CD called Crystal Ball to Warner Brothers, and they said, no, we're not releasing a triple CD album. It's just not happening. Uh, and so it was cut down to the double CD of Sign of the Times. But all of the tracks that were cut, uh, I believe, uh, have since come out. And if you recompile that back into the original uh, triple disc Crystal Ball formation that Prince wanted to release, it's still equally as amazing, if not more so. Um which I can't think of, of any other artist that could deliver a, a triple CD with that many different sounds that with such, uh, you know, a, a huge display of, of quality and, 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 and innovative sounds. I mean, you know, a song like, uh, you know, Ballad of Dorothy Parker alone is, is credited with inventing the whole neo-soul movement that followed 10 years later with artists like um, you know, Bilal and, and D'Angelo and people like that. And that's just one song off that album. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's my main point with, with, with Prince. It all comes back to just that one moment in time or, or that couple of years from 80, 85, I guess, to 87. Um, Cause even, even um, 
you know, we were talking, you guys were mentioning some of the songs off, uh, I think, Paul, you mentioned Graffiti Bridge. A lot of those songs like Joy and Repetition and Question of You and stuff like that, they were recorded in that 86, 87 Sign of the Times era as well. Yeah. Um, so that really is is the point where I think everything just came together for, for Prince. He, after disbanding the revolution, he felt like he had to prove himself and, and he did. So absolutely cool all right well charles you were talking a bit about your favorite prince album before but you want to give us the the overview of all your favorite stuff michael and prince yeah in terms of what made me a fan of michael jackson it was the videos as a kid i'm thinking about your question what would i what would i refer somebody to if i was uh trying to convince them of michael's greatness and i'm trying to think of something that they wouldn't have seen already <laughs> yeah. i mean because he's so ubiquitous i mean who hasn't seen the smooth criminal video or the thriller video but uh, my personal favorite album it's interesting how everybody is saying this but my personal favorite <laughs> michael album is history without question it's just such a bold album is is kind of the most princeish decision that michael ever made was to release that album i mean elements of it were so uncommercial you know can you think of a a less commercial song than little susie it's just you know i mean it's it's totally non-commercial childhood not a commercial song um you know even to an extent you could argue that earth song was really not a particularly commercial. I mean, it proved to be popular, but in terms of the musical landscape that he was releasing it into, it's mm -hmm. a very unlikely hit. It's probably the most aggressively anti-establishment album that's ever been released by a pop star of Michael Jackson's stature. It is anti-police, anti-government, anti-bankers, uh, anti-war, um, anti-big business. Um, it's an incredibly aggressive, bold album. Um, if I said to Sam a while ago, if you took the, the lyrics to a song like Tabloid Junkie and just presented them to somebody on a piece of paper, <laughs> they would easily believe that that was a Chuck D lyric. I mean, it's, mm. you know, it's incredible. It's, it's so not what you would have expected if you'd grown up with the Michael Jackson of <laughs> Off the Wall and Thriller and Bad. My favorite Michael Jackson song always is They Don't Care About Us, just hands down. Um, mm. You know, it might not be the first song I would put on at a party, but <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's just w without question my favorite Michael Jackson song. You could, you could do the um, drill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think with regards to Prince, I think there is an there's an issue with Prince in in terms of sound quality. And Questlove was speaking about this a few years ago and saying how mad he was getting with Prince because he wouldn't remaster any of his stuff. If you have your iPod on and you have your earphones in and you listen to a couple of tracks from history and then you listen to some tracks that you've uh, put onto your iPod from your 1987 mix of Sign of the Times, the difference is so stark. They're so quiet. They're so tinny. There's no bottom on the tracks. They're, they're just so thin. It's very difficult to 
see how you could get somebody into prints in the modern technological age when his old stuff sounds as bad as it does, in my opinion. You know, when you would go to the gigs and he would have his box and play the sampler set, the songs would just sound incredible. Um, but in terms of the official releases which are available, they're not good quality, most of them. Uh, you know, they've not aged well technologically. Um, in terms of the the stuff that's out there, which is of good quality, my favourite two albums would be The Rainbow Children and Lotus Flower. Uh, Lotus Flower is um, just a phenomenal piece of work. And I'm speaking about the Lotus Flower disc. I'm not speaking about the three-disc set because the other two discs were just atrocious. But the Lotus Flower disc, you know, colonized mind. What an incredible, it's just an unbelievable piece of work. Um, Dreamer, unbelievable. In terms of the Rainbow Children, it's interesting because I, I always forget which year that was released in. It was either 2001 or 2002, I think. Was it, Casey? You'll know. Uh, it was 2001, I believe. 2001. So this is an album that comes out in the same year as Invincible. And again, the difference couldn't be more stark. You know, you had Michael, who'd been working for years with all these hot producers uh, to try and create an incredibly contemporary commercial album. Uh, and then when it came out, it just didn't sound that great. A lot of the stuff had dated before it was even released because the album had taken so long to come out. It's not aged well at all. A lot of the sounds on that album just sound ridiculous now by today's standards. And then in the same year, Prince releases this album, which really is of no commercial value at all. As I said earlier, it's like a jazz funk concept album about Jehovah's Witnessism. And yet in terms of sound quality, you listen to it today and it just sounds phenomenal because the whole thing pretty much is recorded live in the studio with instruments, with a band. You know, it's um, an amazing piece of work. The arrangements are unbelievable. Some of my all-time favorite Prince songs are on that album. Mellow is an incredible piece of work. Family Name and The Everlasting Now, unbelievable. So anybody that's looking for something from Prince that they've never heard before, I would suggest Lotus Flower and The Rainbow Children. They almost certainly will never have heard any of the songs, and they probably mm. won't have heard any other Prince material that sounds quite like it absolutely yeah i would agree with that i was i was in la when lotus flower came out and a lot of the shows i went to for that album were just unbelievable all right so sam do you want to talk us about your favorite michael and prince stuff yeah so uh, in terms of michael i would say obviously i got into michael as a fan during the thriller era so that's always very very dear to me that period um, in terms of kind of recommending stuff and trying to get people to access his music, I'd probably point to that era. I'd probably point to the two or three years prior to that and probably maybe into bed. But from about 1970, I'm trying to think, when did Destiny come out? Destiny was 78, right? Yeah. So 78, and then there's Off the Wall, 79, then Triumph, 81, and then Thriller, 82. I mean, that is a fantastic golden period of michael jackson's career and you know you could give 
you know, new fans, any any songs from those from that period. And Michael was just like, you know, it was it was almost as if it was as natural as breathing by that stage for him. He he was at the top of his game. And Thriller, I mean, what an incredible album. The, to follow up off the wall with that album, it's pretty incredible. I mean, some of the stuff on there, it's, see, it's really hard to listen. It's really hard for people to talk about it now because we're so familiar with it. Mm. But when it came out, we weren't familiar with it. And, you know, it was all brand new and it was all happening live for us. So when Beat It came out and it was a black guy doing a really kind of rock you know, doing a rock song with a, a guitar solo, which you, you would never have heard of. You've never seen anything like that on TV and you've never heard anything like that on the radio. It was mind boggling. You know, 30 years, 30 years later, you know, it's uh, a, a classic pop record now and everyone knows it and it's all, all seems so familiar. But back then, um, so that would have been about 982, 983. You, you know, the Run DMC song with Aerosmith, Walk, Walk This Way? Yep. You know that, you know, because when that came out, that was a massive deal. You had these hip hop guys, uh, uh, these rappers rap with rock music, which people hadn't heard before. And it was a it was a one way to go into MTV, for black artists to get into MTV was to kind of mix their sound with rock music. Again, 30 years down the line, that's a, a classic pop song. So it's hard to kind of overstate the significance of that stuff at the time it was happening because it was massive and no one it was unprecedented at the time and that was kind of for us it was pre-print um kind of guitar music in the pop mainstream in the black charts we hadn't heard it i mean prince had released stuff obviously in america prior to that but until purple rain broke here he wasn't the name that he eventually went on to become so if i was to recommend anything for fans uh, to become fans of michael jackson it would be 78 to 82 that would be the period I'd kind of point them to. And if they wanted to see live stuff, there's a video that someone posted from the Victory Tour. Uh, I think it's Mile High Stadium. And it's uh, fantastic quality. Someone's filmed it from the crowd on a little handy cam. Brilliant quality, oddly, though. And the sound quality is incredible. I think he had actually had some of the soundboard recording, which is uh, synced onto the video. And it's... Michael Jackson singing the bridge section of Off the Wall, which is every bridge section of every Michael Jackson song is always fantastic. But that one in particular, and he sings it almost, I promise you, as you watch it, it's almost as if he's about to take off because mm-hmm. he reaches such a state and reaches such a height and his voice just transcends and you just feel like he's about to fly off the stage. Um, and honestly, at that period, he was just magnificent. And for Prince... Again, I kind of got into him just as Purple Rain was finishing. So by that stage, I was insatiable for anything. So the next few years were like my real kind of Prince Golden period. So um, sign of the times, I always say, and I always say to Charlie, like whenever we have arguments about Prince and Michael Jackson, I'll always have a disclaimer saying that, in my opinion, sign of the times is the best album that's ever been released during my lifetime. Only because that nothing else sounds like it. You can't pick another album that's it and say, oh, this is this sounds a bit like Sign of the Times. Nothing sounds like Sign of the Times. There are albums mm. later on that came out after Bad that sound like Bad or albums that came around out, out around Thriller that sound a bit like Thriller, but nothing. I mean, find a song that sounds like If I Was Your Girlfriend or Sign of the Times or Strange Relationship. That kind of mm. eclecticism, 
the kind of drums he was using, the kind of way he was sequencing his voice. And no one was, it was just so avant-garde for us as kids. We were like 13, 14. I mean, this was like some sophisticated stuff we were listening to, you know? Um, And he was just introducing us to so much amazing cultural references that, you know, there's the line, uh, Case has already mentioned the song, and it's it's one of my favorite Prince songs, The Ballad of Dorothy Parker, where Prince is obviously talking to a girl. I can't remember who says it to who, and he says something about his favorite song. It's Joni singing, Help Me, I Think I'm Falling. And it's a reference, obviously, to the Joni Mitchell song, Help Me. And he's pointing you into directions of what his influences were and then as fans, if you're a real hardcore fan, you'll follow those kind of paths, that is, those directions he's kind of leading you to. Um, so hence, you know, myself and Casey are massive Joni Mitchell fans. You'll start listening to Miles Davis. You'll start listening to, you know, all the kind of influences that he was, Prince was obviously listening to. Um, so that would be the period I would point to because the stuff Prince was going through, you know, the Parade album is an amazing album in its own right, but there's an odd kind of Parisian theme to the whole thing. And again, no one in the pop mainstream, and he, you know, these were, this was at a time when he was releasing singles, which were all getting into the top 10. Listen to Girls and Boys, which is on the Parade album. What, what song sounds like that? How, is, how would he have thought that this is something that will get into the pop charts? But it did, and people lapped it up. But, you know, it's not, it wasn't conventional music, and it was, you know, the music video the film of the period is all very avant-garde, it's all very artistic and stylish and stylized. These guys were, you know, incredible, absolutely phenomenal. And for both of them, I think those are the periods I would kind of point to. That doesn't mean that I don't think the rest of their work has value. It's just that that stuff is just, you know, golden. That's a golden period for music and pop music anyway. Fantastic. Okay, so Jamin, do you want to tell us about your favorite stuff, Michael and Prince? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know how I'm going to follow up from Samar, that amazing answer. (laughs) (laughs) So detailed and incredible. (laughs) But interestingly, my thoughts are pretty much the same as Samar. Like, I I would agree that the the peak Michael Jackson period, absolutely for me, would be um, starting with Destiny and then Off the Wall, you know, Triumph, Thriller, that kind of very late 70s, very early 80s period. Uh, for me, is what represents Michael. I don't know, like that, that's what I appreciate about him the most in terms of his music is that really organic um, sound with you know a lot of those funk elements in there and just live instrumentation and really organic, rich sounding um, funk inspired music, jazz inspired music in the case of Off the Wall. So that's that's the era mm. that I appreciate the most, and because of that, Off the Wall. Is, is absolutely my favorite Michael Jackson album. For me, it's the ultimate sort of record to put on uh, in terms of consistency um, from start to finish. It's just, well, maybe except Girlfriend, but it's just such a consistent <laughs> record. Song, really. I just, I hate that song, but whatever. It's, <laughs> <laughs> and there's so many great unreleased songs from that period that could have been on there instead of Girlfriend, but whatever. Who am I to argue with Quincy Jones? Um, so, Blame Paul McCartney for that one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so... Fantastic, fantastic record. I love it. I love the one thing that I really appreciate about albums as a format is is it is when albums have like a consistent uh, sound that go throughout them. And off the wall for me is that it's got like very similar instruments between each song. It's got a similar vibe between mm. each song. Um, 
and it's almost like a journey. You can put it on and go from start to finish, really enjoying everything without being mm. too jolted. Oh wow, I'm listening to a new Jack song here. Wow, I'm listening to a, you know, a, a Broadway <laughs> song here. Like it's um, some of Michael's later albums, even though individually the songs are phenomenal and some of the best work he did. I feel as packages, as albums, um, they're not as strong certainly for me as Destiny, Triumph, Off the Wall, that sort of period. Um, so I love Off the Wall. I love what Michael and Quincy were doing together. The production is just—it's it, it's just amazing to me that you can put an album on from 1979. Like Charles was saying, you can put this 1979 record on, um, listen to it on high-quality earphones today, and it just sounds so brilliant, so well mixed, so well produced, and that's a great testament as well to Bruce Wadian and um, the team that worked mm. with Michael from that time. So yeah, Off the Wall. Definitely for me, number one MJ album. Um, and in terms of Prince, like I said earlier, I don't have the experience that you guys have uh, in terms of knowing all the different Prince records and things like that. You know, I can definitely appreciate um, his work from the 80s and how absolutely groundbreaking it was. And often when you're, you're reading through like, you know, Rolling Stone's top 500 albums of all time or whatever, Sign of the Times um, certainly is, is usually listed in those publications is always within the top 10 or so, um, I don't know. For me, the album I enjoy listening to from Prince the most is Thirty One Twenty One. I don't know whether that was because it came out as the first record that I engaged with and really loved. Um, I don't know. For me, it's just it's a great pop masterpiece of an album. It's um, every song on it is incredibly um, accessible. Like you could play that record to somebody who's not really a massive Prince fan and it just hooks them right in with um, the title track being the first song on there. It's got that great funk and hip hop inspired sort of um, beat to it. Um, every, every song is so different. Lolita is, you know, a um, great dance record. Um, you know, I love, and some of it is really, really quite experimental. Like the word, Probably my favorite song actually on the album Amazing. is The Word. Yeah. Um, brilliant, brilliant piece of music. And, and uh, yeah, I can't really explain why. I just I just feel like that's my favorite Prince album. It's the one I always go back to and listen to the most. Great memories around it too.
Hey, this is really, really Brad Sundberg, studio engineer and technical director for Michael Jackson and host of In the Studio with MJ. You're listening to the MJ cast. All right, guys. So what we're going to do now is lead into some of our general discussion topics. So we're going to go a little more free form here. So anyone can sort of jump in and we'll sort of get the discussion going. And we're going to uh, kick it off with uh, some discussion about uh, the early careers and or musical influences for both artists. So, you know, where they started and who inspired them. And I guess through all these discussions, we're looking at sort of similarities between them and where they came from and, and how, how their careers sort of ended up where they did. So maybe, uh, maybe Casey, you might be a good place to start here, um, talking about the early careers and musical influences of, of both artists. So yeah, so I'd like to, um, in terms of early careers, um, I'd like to start with with Michael and and my position that I felt uh, he and his brothers had uh, the huge advantage of coming into the Motown Hit Factory, which was operating at maximum power by the time they they signed to it. So it was, it was there was no question that they would get grade A material. Um, I mean, for me, I want you back is you know easily one of the best. Motown songs that, that that ever came out for, from Motown, and um, and and you know because Motown had already been running for over a decade at that point, they 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 had songs like that just coming out all over the place, so it was no problem. I mean, I'm sure maybe some of the other Motown artists were not too happy that this new uh, new group of uh, of young kids were getting all this top shelf mm-hmm. material, um, but that was just the the way that that Berry uh, wanted to run the label, and I think you know for whatever however much you know we might have problems with how joe treated his children the end result was that they were perfectionists at a very young age by the time uh, you know they landed a, a record deal in fact it's the reason they, why they landed the record deal and not many people have that you know there are very very few artists in the world that you know had that amount of of, of knowledge and understanding of their craft that Michael did at that age. You know, if you, if you look at artists such as the, the Beatles, Paul McCartney has talked about, you know, that whole 10,000 hours thing that, you know, that, that kind of idea, that sociological idea that, that you need 10,000 hours of, of training in, in something to become a master of it. And for the Beatles, they had that in the clubs in Germany Michael had that by the time he was 10 years old. You know, there were over 10,000 hours of, of, of singing and dancing. Is there anyone else that you can, anyone can think of that, that had that at, at that age? Because um, I can't well, think of anyone. No, that's what I was saying earlier about how yeah. um, you can't teach what Michael had mm. at age of 10. I mean, I want you back. Actually, oddly, if you listen to the couple of songs they recorded prior to their Motown contract, so there's Big Boy. There was another song they recorded. Um, You've changed, is it that one? Yeah. Um, yeah, and if you hear Michael, he sounds actually he sounds a little bit different. He doesn't sound as polished like the kind of uh, complete artist that he was by the time I Want You Back came out. You know, he does falter a bit, and he doesn't have the same kind of quality to his voice and the range to his voice. But listen to Michael Jackson, age ten. Just watch him. Mm. And this, you know, people at Motown said at the time there was something freakish about his talent. That they just that, didn't believe, um, they didn't believe he was a child. You know, the mm. joke was that he was an actually actually a midget, <laughs> a forty-year-old midget. That, that performance of uh, <laughs> yeah, that, of, yeah. that performance of "Who's Loving You" in the the purple yeah, hat. Oh, I remember seeing again, that when I was I a kid, and I was that. like, "What?" I <laughs> I was like, "How yeah. can how can somebody that young be that good?" 
Mm. Yeah, if anyone hasn't seen that, that's the one I would point people to. Like to to see Michael Jackson at that age just singing, it's just unbelievable. Like that's in it's my not just top the singing though, is it? It's, it's the performance. It's the hand gestures. It's yeah. The heads down. Yeah. It's so the flick of the hand when the drum kicks in, and you know, obviously yeah. his brother's kind of moving. It's just, it's scary. It's I mean, you look at it now, and it's damn. They must have worked that. So they must have worked so hard to get it to that stage. Um, I think so I, I much... can't remember. I can't remember the exact quote, but I think um, Smokey said that, like he said, "Oh, it's 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 not my song anymore," or something like that. When yeah. he said, said, do it. Say, I, I, "I thought I wrote it," or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I sang it as well, or something like that. He says, "Bless him." Yeah, and how much natural talent there? Because you just think, you know, how he hasn't had, he hasn't had long enough to learn to develop a craft because he's so young. But it's so much natural talent. Obviously, a lot of hard work and prep, but he just shines you know like he just unbelievable like amazing there's something about it though because you know you would think the pop songs should wouldn't have been as kind of trying for a child but something like i'll be there Mm. songs where you have to convey emotion how the hell would he even know (laughs) like you know he didn't (laughs) i think in his autobiography he didn't even understand what the first Line meant, or he had, he had issues with you and I must make a pact, and he couldn't work out what that, <laughs> what that meant. Yeah. Well, what's always interesting to me about that is that clearly he doesn't understand what it means because he doesn't say pact, he says pack because it yeah. rhymes with back. Right, yeah, so yeah, it's you and I must make a pack. And he's obviously not familiar with the phrase look over your shoulder because he says look yeah, over your yeah, shoulders. Yeah, look over shoulders. <laughs> yeah. That's not the that's not yeah. phrase. It's not easy to do if you've ever tried to look over both shoulders at once. <laughs> Absolutely. But I think that's the other thing, like the difference between Michael and Prince is, you know, Michael obviously started as a child and mm-hmm. he had a lot of a career and, and you know, and, and music that he was performing and um, throughout his youth, whereas sort of Prince kind of came into it as, as still a youth, but, you know, getting close to adulthood. So I mm-hmm. guess Prin- Prince's sort of entry into the business was kind of watching and learning and you know loving music as a child and growing up but didn't really sort of break into it until you know he was sort of 16 17 what's most interesting to me about about that is that you know for michael having the discipline of 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 how motown ran its operations you know it was like an army you know regimental training in in terms of them studying dance and, and vocals and, and doing a song over and over and over and over again until that that right take was done but prince and andre simone his best friend and first bass player they they had that discipline um they gave each other that discipline in terms of their competition by just trying to be the most badass and trying to outdo each other as <laughs> as teenagers so yeah. when when every other teenager is just like you know screwing around or just you know chasing after girls or trying to get drunk or you know whatever those two were in their basement playing guitar playing bass playing drums playing everything just trying to outdo the other one and become better at everything yeah i think something as well that michael had that prince didn't have which even preceded motown was the time that the brothers spent touring around on the chitlin circuit and doing all the talent shows and all that kind of stuff and michael often spoke about uh, you know, kind of watching from the wings and, and watching performers like James Brown and Sammy Davis Jr. and and other greats, you know. And um, so he he had that extra 
training there as a child before he even gets to Motown. Because if you watch that footage of the Motown audition, what you're seeing there is is Michael basically doing James Brown. Um, And this is before all of the Motown training. I think there's an interesting thing as well, which comes out of that, which is that I think that one key difference between Michael and Prince is that personally, I often get the feeling that Michael is playing at feeling something. Whereas I always feel like Prince is really feeling it. So you're talking a minute ago about um, Are We There and how Michael didn't even understand the words of the song and yet he was able to convey emotion. But he's not conveying the emotion from a genuine place if he doesn't really understand what the song is about. So what he's done is, as a child, he has watched and mimicked and internalized the behaviors of performers who are adults who he has studied and he said mm. it himself many times you know study the greats and become greater etc mm-hmm. and then but then as he gets older that kind of it only it it only takes him so far and then you get into these kind of borderline embarrassing segments of his shows where he would sort of sing uh sing she's out of my life and then pretend to cry and it would all just be awful you know but and i think okay. you know with, so that it, it kind of as he grew older it became kind of corny and i feel like the time at which he once again began being properly emotionally invested in what he was singing was around the history era you could argue dangerous you could um yeah. you know you know like gone too soon but um mm. you know does anybody really believe that that kind of awful spoken word thing at the beginning of i just can't stop loving you <laughs> no you know it's, it's just it's really you know yeah. toe curling well I the other thing as well just a, a one more thing which is motown michael becomes friends with Stevie Wonder and um and actually I believe is present throughout some of the recording of songs in the key of life uh, and ends up actually working as a backing singer on some of Stevie's albums so there's a whole other that this is where you start seeing Michael grow as a songwriter so because Motown in in a sense is all about artifice most of Motown's acts were not songwriters. They were yeah. singers and the material would all be written for them. They mm. would all go to what they called the charm school. They would be taught how to walk, how to speak. They would all be taught never answer a, a question straight in an interview, never tell anyone anything, just speak in mm. platitudes. That was something that really did Michael a massive disservice later in life. Mm. The fact that he continued to follow that advice, but via Motown, you do start to see this artistic growth. And a lot of that, I think, is um, attributable to his proximity to and friendship with Stevie Wonder and his work with Stevie Wonder. And the other thing is that um, Jermaine writes in his book that Michael, at the same time, was a massive fan of George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic. And I think you you hear that coming through on the Jacksons albums, because whereas Motown had these um, Motown's Motown's kind of humanitarian songs did tend to be quite schmaltzy. If you think of like 
Diana Ross's song, reach out and touch somebody's hand and make the world a better place and all that, you know, it's all kind of schmouse. Whereas um, George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic, they would take a humanitarian, socially conscious song, but they would turn it into a dance floor filler. So a song like Cosmic Slop, Cosmic Slop is all about uh, a child whose mother is a prostitute. And yet, if you played it in a club, the whole dance floor would be teeming. Similarly, James Brown would take a a song like um, I Don't Want Nobody to Give Me Nothing, but it would be this thumping dance song with an incredibly socially conscious aspect to it. And then when you come to a song like Can You Feel It, is that coming from the Motown tradition or is it coming from the George Clinton, James Brown tradition? Clearly from the latter um, so Motown took Michael to a certain level, but there were these outside influences, which yeah. actually were the influences mm. that he shared with Prince. Mm. I, w- I would definitely agree with that. I mean, I, we we saw George Clinton uh, just a couple of months ago uh, here in here in Birmingham, and it's all about that solid solid groove that just it can go on for however long you know prince would take that same concept and stretch it out into a half an hour groove you know funkadelic would do similar things when when they started out and you didn't see that in 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 michael's stuff until that those later jackson's records and like you said can you feel it and and tracks like that so yeah that's that's a very very great point Mm. well in terms of um musical influences for prince i mean he often talks about you know sly and the family stone and and things like that does anyone else have any sort of thoughts on on anything they can share about prince well, he, he was a jackson's fan wasn't he he went to a jackson show if i if i'm uh, remember correctly so yeah, he, was into I, the... I, he had a quote uh where he said that every everyone every black kid our age loves the jacksons or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 um, but yeah, he's he's slightly more eclectic, isn't he, Prince? In in, the, in, in terms of his uh, influences, like I said earlier, massive uh, fan of Joni Mitchell, and Joni Mitchell spoke. Joni Mitchell doesn't speak highly of many people, and uh, <laughs> yeah. but she does, in particular, speak very highly. I think she, there was a video that was being shown before Prince took to the stage at the O2 every night when he did his Twenty One Nights, and I think on the first few nights. It ended with the Joni Mitchell quote. She's talking to Cameron. She talks about how he's the greatest entertainer she's ever witnessed and, you know, whose lifetime she's kind of experienced, um, which is high praise. There's, um, um, there's, there's, there's some mythology. It may be factual. It may be mythology. We don't really know. But she said that she, she said that Prince, as a child, went to a concert and she saw him and years later she remembered that it was the same kid that was at her concert so we yeah whether that's true or a bit of uh you know mythology is is interesting but uh that mutual respect was was definitely there yeah i mean yeah so the, the connection between him and say for example Joni mitchell is not just as him being a fan of us he didn't he turn up to warner brothers record label with the uh um when he when he they were doing the listening uh, around the, the world in the day, yeah. Around the world in the day, listening. Uh, uh, and he turned up with his dad, uh, Wendy and Lisa, and Joni Mitchell. Yes, um, and he was and he was carrying a rose. <laughs> I mean, just imagine. <laughs> but you know, he imagine him growing up as a kid, being a fan of hers, and then kind of hanging out with her, and then her kind of paying all these tributes to him. Phenomenal. Mm. But yeah, so he's this slightly more eclectic. So Michael was obviously surrounded by the Motown sound was very much into the Beatles as well. Um, very much into show show tunes, wasn't he? Yeah. Very much into the kind of Disney music as well. Um, but Prince, 
Yeah, Sly and the Family Stone were very big for him. Who else would you say were very big for him? Jimi Hendrix, I imagine, would have been massive for him. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, mm. Yeah. I, mean, I Prince, guess what's... Prince, Prince denied the Hendrix connection for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fruitless well, anyone, anyone who's seen Prince live with a guitar, it's pretty hard to, <laughs> to, to deny. But I think what's interesting about uh, Prince in terms of the way he started, unlike we talked about Michael, how, you know, he had all this time to watch and learn and then, you know, was doing all the stuff through Motown. Um, whereas Prince didn't really seem to have that. He was more just playing around, you know, with music in, you know, in his bedroom or in the studio. And it's, you know, obviously you've probably heard that it's reported that his first ever live performance or showcase was apparently pretty awful. So it's like he seemed mm. to come out of the gate not prepared and not really being, and it's almost impossible to imagine because, you know, you see Prince live or, or perform on a video live and you just mm -hmm. go, wow, this guy's amazing live performer. It's yeah, kind of yeah. hard to imagine that his first sort of show coming out to, to present to the world or whoever was there, it might not have been so great. He might have been a bit rusty. I mean, what do people think? Yeah. Well, he was he was painfully shy, is what it was. So if you look at these first TV appearance on on with Dick Clark on American Bandstand, he won't even talk to Dick Clark. He, <laughs> yeah. You know, he, he Dick Clark asks him a question about how you know how many years he'd be doing this, whatever, and he holds up his fingers rather than saying anything. And, <laughs> and and that's 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 because of how shy he was. It was that wasn't yeah. an act. You know, I remember seeing that. I've seen that video. It's like. But even then, you can look at it and go, okay, this guy's different. There's something about this guy. He doesn't mm. seem to care about trying to impress, trying to do a publicity sort of, you know, correct, you know, he's not like groomed, like Motown, this is how you answer questions mm. and this is what you say. He's just like, I'm here for the music and I don't care and I don't <laughs> care if people think I'm a bit odd. He's just doing what he does. Mm. And you sort of go, okay, there's something about this guy that's, you know, very unique right from that moment. Yeah. See, that that was, for me, that was the appeal for for Prince because I got into Prince when I was about 12 or 13 so I was kind of going through puberty when I was getting into Prince so where Michael was clean pristine angelic you know everything you wanted when you were an 11 year old everything you wanted your heroes to be Prince was gritty seemed to he came across as being kind of like as if he just rocked up with a guitar and like you know hadn't done sound check and then obviously you see the uh, performance at the James Brown concert where Michael tells James <laughs> Brown to come on stage to bring Prince on stage and Prince kind of goes a bit crazy on stage and there was always an element of danger and kind of excitement about him. Well he knocks over a giant lamp pole or something doesn't he? <laughs> yeah yeah but when you're a 13 year old when you're a 13 year old 14 year old going through puberty that's very exciting that kind of element of danger was quite exciting and it was um it, that's what Prince represented, you know. So when you saw Purple Rain and you see him, it's something that actually Charlie was just talking about when he was talking about Michael seeming to mimic adult behavior. He, so stuff that he hadn't actually lived, uh, he was mimicking. And I, I had a conversation with Charlie years ago on a forum, and we were talking about the Invincible album. We were talking about lots of people, lots of fans were on this particular forum and on this group, and we were talking about the Invincible album. And fans, some of the fans were saying how one of their favorite songs was Break of Dawn. And they were saying how, how, how much they loved this song. And I was saying, does it sound like something Michael would say, though? You know, some of the lyrics were, do they sound realistic to you? I, I can't remember what the lyric is. It's something like, uh, I don't want the sun to shine. I just want to make love. Yeah, and you're yeah, thinking, yeah. is that, do you imagine Michael Jackson saying that? Whereas when I said to Charlie, I said in the forum, I said, the difference between Michael Jackson and Prince is this, when they're writing love songs, Michael Jackson's talking about, 
making love. Prince is talking about fucking. (laughs) (laughs) I think I think that is kind of what attracted me to him in the first place because me as like well obviously when I was really young I was like you're not allowed to listen to all of these Prince albums because now you just can't. But for me it was like I was I was about twelve thirteen years old and I was like oh so that's what you're actually about. (laughs) And then there was basically there was this 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 man and he had and then like i think the first album that had lyrics like that was actually not dirty mind but i think it was come so that's even worse basically to (laughs) do that so so for him to have like a whole track of basically a woman moaning on it that is quite a move he's (laughs) oh he's a badass for just that (laughs) this this is what typical this is what typical was arguing about this is what typical yeah. was happening, actually. <laughs> well, I, I, I yeah. took I took great pleasure uh, in in the late '90s and early 2000s um, when when everybody I knew was listening to Limp Biscuit and Corn and things like that. I took great pleasure in, in letting them know that the very first album to have a parental advisory sticker. In fact, the reason yeah. that sticker exists yeah. is because yeah. of Dar- Purple Rain yeah. and, and Darling Nikki. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and this is good because you know we we're going to actually bring this up. So we've naturally sort of moved to this 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 topic. Uh, talking about sexuality uh, and how both artists sort of differed in their presentation of it. Now, clearly Prince, you know, you could say Prince is music. You could also say Prince is sex. And a lot of people, particularly in his early career, just thought, well, that's all he is about. He's just, you know, he was clearly extremely sexual um, and, you know, right through, but particularly, you know, once he got into sort of diamonds and pearls, it's like, Okay, screw it. I'm just gonna I'm gonna write a song about cream, you know. I'm gonna write a song called "Get Off." Although, although that's not that B-side "Horny Pony." Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just like, and then you know that was exactly the same area where he decided he didn't need to sort of you know have a bum in his pants. Just like, <laughs> get it all out there. It's like okay, this and you know, and and that's sort of bringing back from right in the early days where he was sort of, you know, dancing around in his underpants and a trench coat, you know, very sexual. And all of those lyrics of those early songs in particular, but they weren't really mainstream. So I guess Diamonds and Pearls here, he brought that into the mainstream before, I guess, it was a lot more underground, you know, with, with Dirty Mind sort of era and songs, you know, Jack You Off and Private Joy and all that kind of stuff. Um, well, I always I always take great task uh, when, when people say that Prince became less um, sexual over the years, because even right till the end, he was still singing Bambi one of the earliest songs which is about him yeah, wanting yeah. to sleep with a lesbian and it contains yeah. that famous that famous lyric maybe you need to bleed and I saw him sing yeah. that two years ago I mean how can you say that that he's not still as, as sexual yeah. and he's still singing songs yeah. like that so well also you know if you um if you listen to hit and run part two there's uh-huh. um there's a song on there called when she comes um, yeah. And if you if you listen also to the Rainbow Children, which uh, keep banging on about, but is that's considered to be probably his most religious album. It's a religious concept album, and yet the song "Mellow" on that album is unbelievably sexual. And that's kind of because a, a lot of kind of armchair critics say of Prince, well, he was great until he turned Jehovah's Witness, and then he stopped doing all the dirty stuff. Well. <laughs> you know, if you actually listen to some of the stuff that he was releasing, you know, Mellow is probably one of the most sexual songs he ever that? released, mm-hmm. but it's just done in an incredibly sophisticated way. And he well, spoke about it in interviews about how you don't have to be graphic in order to mm. talk about that stuff. 
Mm. Yeah. yeah, I guess there was no shock factor. He wasn't sort of going for the whole pushing the boundaries. He was just doing it in a much more, you know, relevant way well, to, to where he was at. Yeah. I I saw him, the last time I saw him at, at the piano and a microphone tour, uh, he actually performed the song I Love You In Me, which I wow. didn't expect him to do. And listening to the lyrics, and it's not like he's just sort of breezing past the lyrics. He was actually singing the song. Um, which is a very sexual sort of lyric mm. and, and song, mm-hmm. and he was performing it, and it was amazing. So definitely, definitely, Prince has always sort of been in touch with with that sort of sexuality in a way that you sort of believed it. I guess yeah. Michael, on the other yeah, yeah. hand, mm-hmm. it's always that question. It's like is it, he's playing a character, and and he's getting into the character of the song, and he's a storyteller. So yeah. you know, when he, he does, you know, she's out of my life, where he does these songs. Um, I always felt that he was coming from it as an interpreter, as a storyteller. He becomes the character in the song and Mm -hmm. he interprets it that way. Whether or not you buy into it as to Mm -hmm. if it's real is a whole other thing. And I think someone raised it earlier. I think in his early career, you kind of went with it. Mm -hmm. As it got into his much later (laughs) career, it's very hard to sort of imagine sort of Invincible era Michael, you know, lying down, making love to someone until (laughs) the sun comes up. Mm -hmm. But you know what, though? We cannot forget about In the Closet and that video with Naomi Campbell (laughs) because, like, that was sexy. I think that is probably Michael on his sexiest. Whether he was playing it or not, that was sexy. (laughs) Well, actually, I've got the uh, I've got the lyrics to that song right here on my screen, and <laughs> yeah, it's it's just a feeling. You have to soothe it. You can't neglect it. You can't abuse it. It's just desire. You cannot waste it. Then, if you want it, then won't you taste it? So, like, <laughs> so like, there's definitely like, yeah, there's definitely parts during Michael's career when he was absolutely not afraid to uh, be, um, you know, sexual, uh, especially artistically yeah. in, in his music. And, and of course, how can you forget on stage the amount of times he'd, he'd grab himself, like, even then he'd talk about it, didn't he? I mean, I haven't read Shmuley's book, Rabbi Shmuley's book, but what, what snippets are, I have seen posted, he talks about how, you know, he doesn't want to be perceived as a sex symbol and how, mm. you know, he didn't want people to have, um, uh, he wanted to be seen as a role model who didn't kind of pander to that particular stereotype, if you like. Mm. Um, so it was almost as if that was consciously what he was trying to avoid doing, but on stage he just couldn't help himself. Um, but what's yeah. interesting about Invincible, so you had Break of Dawn, which is, I don't want the sun to shine, I want to make love, which is, I just didn't find authentic or believable. But then the next track was, um, what was it, Tell the Angels No, I don't want to Heaven Can Wait. Heaven, Heaven Can Wait. wait. Teddy can Riley wait, production, yeah. yeah. Which is a much more romantic song, much yeah. more kind of beautiful song, and lyrics that mm. are much more believable because they are slightly yeah. more fantasy and slightly more kind of what Quincy says about him that he, you know, he he loved to paint and he was like a in terms of music he was much more like thinking filmically, and he, you know he'd think in a kind of cinematic yeah. way. So when he, when he'd mm-hmm. sing love songs, they'd be kind of almost over the top. You know, like, I just can't stop loving you. The lyrics to that are so over the top, you know. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, getting down to the nitty gritty, talking about, you know, making love to break a dawn, it's just not believable. It just wasn't believable by that stage. You yeah. know? It's kind of odd any time you see Michael Jackson sort of uh, presented as a regular guy. And I think that's because of the amount of times during his career he tried to present himself as this fantastical being who could do anything. There's some, you know, it's not necessarily on the, the sexual sexualized topic, but, you know, there's some photos of, uh, there's a photo shoot done at Neverland in, um, 
the very early 2000s. I think it's actually a part of the Ultimate Collection booklet where Michael's just walking around Neverland in like uh, jeans and a leather belt and it's just regular clothing and it's like, wow, I mean, this is a regular guy and it's just such a confronting yeah, yeah. image because yeah. <laughs> he was never portrayed that way. So, Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard to say... It's hard to say, you know, I'm Peter Pan on the one hand. You know, I'm mm-hmm. Peter Pan in my heart and then talk about making love till the break of dawn on yeah, the other exactly. hand. Yeah, that's right. Um, Jarring contrast. Whereas, yeah. Well, yeah, whereas Prince, even though people say he kind of, you know, came slightly more kind of sanitized as he got older. I'm sure I've seen, it's either I've seen an interview or I've read an interview by him where he talks about, you know, using profanities in songs. And he said, and he was asked, why did you do it? And he said, because it was cool to do it. He said it's not cool to do it now, and he says everyone does it now. How do you? How can you, dif- you know, differentiate yourself from what people are doing? Stop swearing. Yeah, I mean, he was he was <laughs> he was the ultimate contrarian. <laughs> mm, <laughs> exactly, right. not happening. I'm going to do that. Yeah, exactly. I think another song on um, Invincible that you should not forget about in terms of like the songs that are like Break of Dawn, like that kind of thing, is Two Thousand Watts. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because if you really look into the concept behind that, that is like the, the opposite, basically, of what Break of the Honest, if you see it in that kind of way. And it's even a really, really, really raw and low voice where he even like sort of reformed his voice to make it sound really, really low. Yeah, I, I think he gave a very uh, convincing performance on 2000 Watts, but the, the, the final release song was a bit bogged down in production. If you hear the, uh, the, the, you know, the less produced version, uh, before mm-hmm. they, you know, did whatever they did to his vocals, I think it's it's, it's temporized. Yeah, I like yeah. it a lot better. That version. <laughs> is there an version earlier version of Two Thousand Watts? I've never heard that. Yes, yes, there is. Yes, there oh is. my yeah, god! They... Okay, someone send that to me today. <laughs> I'll send it to you. I'll send it to you. Yes, please. Yeah, they. <laughs> I, I think I think they used um, Melodyne or, or, or Auto Tune or one of those things to yeah. digitally shift the pitch of or yeah. or, or, the, or the cadence of where yeah. his vocal was, and that's the yeah. the earlier version is before they did that. Mm. Um, yes. Yeah. It's better. <laughs> they did the same thing with whatever happens, which not a, not to the same extreme, but they they pitched it down there as well. It just yeah, if you ever hear it pitched slightly up, it just sounds a lot more the way you're used to hearing Michael. But I don't know. Does that two thousand watts? I mean, Kim, does that make him sound sexier? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, not so much. The lots of effects that were used on his voice. <laughs> the earlier version. Yeah. It's just the lyrics of it, basically, because yeah, you know, mm. you. I think that a lot of like especially all the friends or like friends that are my age or like in their 20s 30s might have no way to understand what the fuse blown thing thing means there so i think what's interesting about um invincible itself is that you've got songs like heartbreaker and invincible and unbreakable things like that but you also got the songs like break of dawn and heaven can wait and whatever happens and then you've got a 2000 watts so it's like it's like there's these love songs, but then there's also like these more upbeat songs and they're like about heartbreak and about wanting to get a mm. girl like not and not like being able to be with her. And actually, Michael made a reference to Prince on Invincible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the actual Invincible song. Yeah. Yeah. If he's buying diamonds and pearls. That's it. Yeah, that's right. it. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Nice. Prince well, was back, back with with uh, with his own lyric on uh, "Life of the Party," where he naughty, said, uh, "Naughty, naughty." <laughs> he, he said, "My voice, is, my naughty, voice is getting higher, but I've never had my I've never nose had my nose done." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs>
Hey, this is Taj Jackson of 3T, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. So we're moving into uh, actually talking about our next topic, which is musical styles. It's interesting because both artists have evolved in their musical styles in terms of the content that they put out. Maybe I'd, it's pretty hard to, to disagree that Prince probably had more diversity in his styles. But, um, but let's talk a little bit about, you know, the styles of music. I mean, I guess we'll start with Michael. I mean, obviously he went through the Motown era, so it was kind of very much in that kind of style. But when he came true into himself and started doing his own thing through the Jacksons and then into the solo mm-hmm. stuff, I mean, I guess you would call that, I mean, would you call that sort of pop, R&B, disco a little bit in there? And then, you know, how do we feel that evolved? Like, you know, what do people think about it, the t- type of style that he was? Well, yeah, I would I say mean, um, I would say it would, it, the strong funk influence is what evolved post-Motown. That's the strongest yeah. thing to me. And the Jacksons as a family don't get enough credit for pioneering this like... Um, this 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 unique walking baseline style that they did, starting with "Can You Feel It," and then you see that pop up continuously through through Michael's career, even up to "Smooth Criminal" and and past that. Um, nobody ever talks about that, but it's to me, it's a cornerstone of of the Jackson sound. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought I thought disco actually. He he referenced disco as being like their kind of uh, get out of childhood kind of genre, didn't he? When I think in Moonwalk he says disco helped us you know mm. aim ourselves at the adult market um but yeah, yeah i mean he at that at that stage he's at such a kind of pivotal moment in black american music where disco when he was do, when the jacksons and when off the wall came out when they were doing it it was almost at the end of its kind of life cycle and so they had they had disco elements and they had funk elements there was all uh, charlie mentioned earlier there was always the schmaltz with michael though so there was always references to his kind of disney showbiz you know show tunes kind of background and the kind of other interests outside of black american music that he had there was always that as well in his music but and and the same by the same token that um you know that, that the whole show tunes influence was bringing um some of the best of that uh you know that style and and that era to people that had never seen Fred Astaire or, or Sammy Davis Jr. Exactly, or, or, exactly. or anything yeah, like yeah. that. So. You, know, you know what I say about Michael, that he's like such a fantastic kind of cultural epicenter that. And I, I, this, is, this is actually verbatim what I said when I went to work the following day after he'd passed away and I was so upset and I was so pissed off. And someone, you know, a person in our publicity department put her arm around me. She was very sweet. And she said, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry, Sam. I know it must have been really, you know, terrible last night. And I said... The problem is that he is the last of a particular type of Hollywood star who is connected to Charlie Chaplin, Gene Kelly, Walt Disney, uh, James Brown, um, um, Jackie Wilson, Quincy Jones. He's from a particular golden period of Hollywood and connects you to so many different strands like Fred Astaire. You know, we were never... Fred Astaire, however amazing he was, he would never have kind of... We would never, he would never have appealed to like black or Asian kids in London. Yeah, in yeah he the was 1980s. not on our radar. Yeah, he wasn't on our radar years prior to you know our existence. You know, I, just, I had uh, never heard of um, Bob Foss before. Uh, Bob Foss, you know, uh, the Nicholas before. Brothers. We wouldn't have seen yeah. all of that stuff. Mm. You know? And it's because of Michael we did. And the same can be said of Prince. Like I said, you know, I'm a massive Joni Mitchell fan now, pretty much because of Prince, because you know him introducing us to those kind of sounds. Um, but Michael, mm. in particular, is a massive, like cultural, like 
reference point for so many different strands of entertainment. Um, and mm -hmm. that's why that's why his death in particular was such a massive tragedy for us as kind of like, the audience. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking about, you know, when Prince started out, so Michael had already had a bit of a career going, obviously, and for a while there, they were almost kind of doing similar style, you know, like, you know, the sort of disco dance sort of stuff that was coming out of the Jacksons, you know, maybe slightly, you know, comparable to what sort of Prince was doing um, in his first couple of records a little bit. But they kind of veered off quite sort of drastically after that, and even Damn. though they were doing, yeah, uh, and mainstream sort of success, you know, for both like Michael and Prince's sort of solo careers, if you will, um, sort of led them into sort of new territory, and and Michael sort of moved further and further away, I think, from where he started. Uh, and, you know, you listen to sort of, you know, like, why you want to trip on me or something and sort of think, is that the same person who was singing Blame It on the Boogie yeah. or something? You know, mm -hmm. he quite went into a really different direction. And it seemed like a fairly consistent evolution with Michael. Yeah. You know, like mm -hmm. you can sort of track mm -hmm. it evolving and each each album and project would sort of build a little bit on the next. And you could hear some reminiscence from the previous mm -hmm. work and he's taken it a bit further. I think Prince kind of just bounced around like a sort of, you know, <laughs> I don't know, like a ping pong ball in a, in a cage or something, just going all over the place and backwards and forwards mm -hmm. and around. Uh, and his musical styles, you know, you can't deny, he tried everything, you know, like he's mm -hmm. done every style of, of music. And like, it's interesting, we're talking about what we, what albums we like and songs we like. There's so much more in, in Prince's catalogue with so many albums to actually discover whether you like one aspect or another and you might really like you know the sort of the later sort of music like npg formation of the band like in the in the 2000s is one kind of version of prince you know 80s version of prince 90s prince you know i wrote a post on uh, on tumblr a few years ago um you know giving my point about why prince was the best musician ever and towards the end of it i i decided to write a list of the amount of artists um that had publicly gone on record as 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 naming prince as a major influence and it almost seemed yeah. to be a never-ending list of people from every genre of music that you could think of and even i surprised myself by the time mm -hmm. i looked back at the list and i was like wow there's like 60 70 different iconic artists from every genre yeah. here all on record as saying prince is the man um <laughs> and I, I i think i think his 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 position being able to play everything sing and produce that allowed him in an era where music was, was changing every year and new innovations were coming along. He could innovate in any way, in any style where it would usually take a whole band of musicians and a producer operating in that one genre to make something new. He could just go yeah. in on his own and, yeah. and flip it and change it. You know, drum machines and soul music. Who was doing that in 1981? You know, mm. um, it's, it's, there's so many examples of that. And yeah, that's, um, there's another element to this, which is, is, is partly about what drives each artist. And with Michael, he was very much driven by commerciality mm. and prestige. So what happens when, what is the inspiration for Thriller is, I didn't get enough Grammy nominations for <laughs> Off the Wall. I want, I want to make an album that's going to win awards. Then what's the inspiration for Bad? The inspiration for Bad is... I want to sell 100 million copies. 
So mm-hmm. Michael is specifically always looking to make his next project the most commercial it can possibly be. He wants Mm -hmm. to sell more tickets than anyone that ever sold. He wants to sell more CDs than anyone's ever sold. Mm -hmm. Prince is actually in many areas, the exact opposite. So Michael comes out of thriller, biggest selling album of all time and says, I want bad to be bigger. Prince Mm -hmm. comes out of purple rain and says, I am absolutely sick of this shit. And I'm going to make something (laughs) that sounds nothing like like purple. I think he actually gave, yeah, he gave interviews where he said he was sick of performing concerts for people Mm. that were Mm -hmm. only there to hear purple rain. Um, and it, you know, people that were only there to kind of clap along to the bits that they recognized from the film. And he Mm -hmm. deliberately wanted to get rid of those people from (laughs) his next tour. So he, he went out and made an album, (laughs) which sounded nothing like purple rain on purpose yeah. deliberately trying to get rid of his fans <laughs> you know i mean so yeah. you can't the best, get the, two artists with more oppositional approaches in that sense the best thing about that was that he did he didn't give warner brothers a single for uh, around the world in a day he said no you send this album to radio with a sticker on it saying listen to the whole album and play whatever you want <laughs> and so the end result was that yeah. the radio djs who were not used to that at all they didn't play anything because they didn't know they didn't, they didn't want to listen to the whole album and pick a favorite <laughs> they were used to yeah. getting an album this is the single this is what you play um and warner's warner's forced him to to, to release a single uh of raspberry beret and forced him to do a video for it because the radio djs were just not playing anything and they were like no mm. we can't have this and he didn't care yeah. I mean, it made no difference yeah. to rinse yeah. Yeah. No, he definitely pretty much seemed to do whatever he wanted to, to do. And it always seemed to be coming from the, the most pure place. However, he felt whatever he wanted to do, that's what he did. He didn't seem to care. He's just like, I'm going to make music because that's what I do when I wake up every day. And that's what I feel. I want to play music and make music. And anyone who wants to come along for the ride, come along mm-hmm. for the ride. And yeah. that was his whole philosophy. It's like the NPG Music Club and every sort of incarnation yeah. of that. It was all like, look, you know, if you want music, it's all about real music. Come along, hang out. You know, we'll give you all these opportunities. Um, and he just didn't seem to care, like, you know, about any of those kinds of sort of commercial success things. That's not really why he was in it, which <coughs> I find fascinating. Um, and at the same time, my favorite ever Prince concert that I went to was the very first one I saw in 2003, which was a greatest hits show, the prelude to the musicology tour which he only did in like Australia, Hawaii, Japan, I think. And at the time, his latest album was News, which was the instrumental. (laughs) And it had also been the time where through Rainbow Children, it's like, okay, we're not playing any of the hits anymore. We've retired the hits. You know, if you came to get your Purple Rain on, you're in the wrong house, that kind of thing. And I I was sort of thinking... News is arguably the least commercial album by any pop artist ever. Yeah. And... (laughs) And I and I thought, okay, I'm going to go to this concert. I'd never seen Prince live before. You know, obviously been a huge fan. And I was fully expecting, okay, he's not playing any of the hits. He's probably going to play instrumental news for the whole show. Who knows what to expect? <laughs> and I went into this show thinking that. And I was right near the front at, at this show. And he came out and he opened and said, you know, dearly beloved and went into let's go crazy <laughs> went through every hit right through until purple rain it was wow. amazing it was like every hit that you could imagine him doing fantastic he did at this show and it was like 
heaven. <laughs> it was like, I just could not believe, you know, what what I was seeing before me, all of the hits and everything, and he was performing. And a lot of people were saying he's as good as he's ever been. And people who went to the Diamonds and Pearls tour, um, which I didn't get to go to, said, look, he's much better now. He's evolved. His performances is so much stronger. And like we were talking about earlier, his stamina, like he did, you know, like mm. a one-hour pre-show sound check. He did a three-hour concert. And then he went and did an after-show till five in the morning. Mm -hmm. So mm. it was incredible. And this is what we want to talk about now in the show is, is a little bit about live performance, which is really, you know, kind of the epitome mm. of, of a lot of, particularly mm. with Prince, because he did a lot more of it. But yeah. um let, let's talk a bit about live performances and like some of our favorite shows or how you feel about, you know, them as live artists. I think, I think wow. there's one more, I think there's one more thing about Prince's musical styles that we should mention though. We should mention how he created the Minneapolis sound and how that has a connection to the oh, Jackson course, family as well from there yes, because you so had Jem and Lewis and they produced mm -hmm. Janet. Yeah. I said and that. And later on Michael. And later on Michael. Yeah. Yeah. I said that recently to Charlie actually about, Actually, I think maybe I mentioned it on the last show when I was on about Janet going to number one last year with her album Unbreakable mm -hmm. and how historically why that was so important, not just because of her overcoming the success, overcoming being blackballed from Hollywood and, yeah. you know, from the mainstream record labels, that she was still able to independently release an album, get it to number one on the Billboard Hot 100. But with Jam and Lewis, continuing the Minneapolis success on the American pop charts. This is like 35 years after probably the first kind of Minneapolis album that went to number mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. So historically, I, there's, you know, that's, that's a very important release. Um, I kind of, I always wish that Michael would have worked with Jam and Lewis sooner, but I think he had a kind of chip on his shoulder about them being Prince's protégés. Can you imagine if he'd done a track with them, uh, you know, around when Janet did Rhythm Nation, when, when Jam and Lewis would <laughs> well, have what's gone, Yeah, what's interesting about Janet uh, working with Jam and Lewis is that, uh, you know, her favorite Prince song is uh, Soft and Wet, right? Yeah. So she said, you know, soft and wet. That that was my favorite song, and that's why I wanted to work with Jamalos. You know, that's how I ended up going to Minneapolis and working with Jamalos. Michael Jackson's favorite Prince song is "Soft and Wet," and apparently he'd yep. play it, you know, all the time, twenty-four <laughs> hours around the clock in at Neverland, which is really interesting. And if you listen to "Soft and Wet," it's the most Michael Jackson Prince song you can listen to, and it's pre yeah. that that particular Michael Jackson sound. So it's kind of you know staccato. Uh, it's odd, oddly kind of percussion and ryth rhythmical and the, that kind of vocalization that Michael adopted later on for things like Smooth Criminal and, you know, clearly influenced heavily by Prince, very early Prince as well, not just like, you know, Super the first the, the first time I ever be I remember being aware of, of the Minneapolis sound and, and Jam and Lewis history was reading um, Janet's uh, design of a decade uh, liner notes where uh, where she talks about talking to Joe uh, about the idea of her working with with Jam and Lewis. And he says, um, those guys came from Prince and you are not going to sound like Prince. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's interesting actually thinking about you know the way their careers and 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 their, through their performances, you know whether, how aware they were of each other and 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 you know whether they were trying to steer clear of of, of each other's sound and and one thing I found with Prince was that you know he was pretty much known for sort of like not sort of trying to do anything that related to Michael or he didn't seem to to want to go down that path and never performed any kind of Michael or Jackson songs. 
until pretty much until he passed away, he, Prince kind of switched. And all of a sudden, he started doing all these Michael sort of tribute mm-hmm. songs and performances. Beautiful, I remember, beautiful. beautiful. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, I was in, when I went to the Paisley Park show, uh, it was in 2009, and it was shortly after Michael passed away. And he did like four, at least four Jackson songs. He did uh, I Want You Back. Uh, well, he did Stand, which was the Sly and the Family Stone, but, you know, I'm mm-hmm. so familiar with the, the Jackson 5 version. He did Dancing Machine. Larry oh, Green on stage, wow. and he did shake your body down to the ground, um, <laughs> and and it was like wow, okay, he seems to have really let go and embraced. It's almost like while Michael was around, he didn't want to go there, but now that Michael had passed and people were celebrating his career, he thought, well, why not? And I think even in the the twenty one night shows he was doing in L.A., they would often do don't stop to get enough and sometimes yep. want to be starting something he didn't off, he didn't do yeah. the vocal on them but they would actually perform uh-huh. them with shelby or whoever so it's like he embraced michael's music a little more i saw him do um um you know that that mashup of, of don't stop should you get enough with uh with the time song cool i saw him do that cool. several times yeah. um but there's one there's one show um i think it was around 2009 2010 um and a bootleg is not leaked to this show it's one of the very few shows where there's no bootleg of it and i believe it was at uh, the hotel gansevoort in new york and according to uh, it was a very small small show uh, according to some of the set lists that i've seen and some of the people that were there he did um i can't help it at this show yeah wow um, i saw that oh, wow. oh you saw that Ah, I, don't wow. know if it was, okay. I don't know if it was the same show, but he definitely did it because um, Esperanza Spalding was the uh, was the support act, um, and um, I'm pretty sure, yeah, because it was one of the 21 night shows in LA. He definitely did it, and she was doing the opening act, and then he came out and joined her on stage and sang it as a duet with her. That's awesome. Yeah, so it's a full <laughs> full full trifecta of Prince Michael yeah. and Stevie right there. <laughs> Well, I, I remember um, there used to be a video online of, um, which used to be online, it's been taken off. And ever since, you know, Prince passed away, people uploaded every video under the sun. They never uploaded this video of Prince. I think he's performing Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. And he brings Reby Jackson on stage uh, oh, and dances yeah, with her. Saw... That's awesome. You've never seen that? Really? Oh, wow. Escaped me. Oh, wow. There you go. Search for that. Yeah. Yeah. He brings Reba Jackson. Yeah. I think he brings one of her daughters on stage. Um, I think Austin Brown is in the crowd as well. But he brings Reba on stage and he dances with her. And it's a beautiful moment because obviously Michael has just passed away like 12, 12 months prior to that. And I think it's yeah. performed up till you get enough and he's dancing with her, which is quite magical. Um, this, um, this, this, this seems like a, um, a good point to um, mention something. I don't know if you guys. Um, um heard this latest news about bad you heard have you heard the latest news yeah about that? the prince version <laughs> that apparently exists yeah so so uh for, for 30 years the story has been that uh michael sent prince um bad said do you want a duet prince said no and that we thought that was the end of the story uh but Susanna melvoy now uh, wendy's sister from the from the revolution um she was on a podcast with Tore a couple of weeks ago and she, according to her uh prince went and recorded a version of the song and sent it back to michael like this is how i think your song should sound but i'm still not going to sing it with you <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, he was. Br- I mean, they were brilliant in the sense that look, these were, guys were so well known and so famous, and so kind of popular, but made such a massive effort never to be seen in the same place at the same time. And there's a, you know, on the tw- yeah, the Twenty One yeah. Nights book that was released, um, there was a kind of Twenty One Nights uh, companion booklet 
massive book, which uh, a full full color thing, which was released with a CD, and it's a it's a performance from one of the after show parties where Prince is mm-hmm. performs a few songs, and then he, he goes into this little rap, and he's talking about paparazzi in Hollywood, and one of the paparazzi, and he's recounting what one of the paparazzi says to him, and he says, "If we can only get one picture of you and you and Michael Jackson, we'll make yeah. mil- you know, we'll make millions." And yeah. if you think about it, if you think about it now, if only one photo of Michael Jackson and Prince existed, whoever took that photo would be a millionaire. It's that simple. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's, you know, well, with it, the exception of the James Brown like little appearance that they both got up on stage. Amazingly, they're ne- you never see them in the same shot, which is just no, so yeah. Different. <laughs> I, yeah. I find it really so hard to to understand how you, you guys know the story about that will i am tells about michael visiting a prince show in like the late yep. 2000s yeah, yeah, in las yeah. vegas and prince comes down and starts slapping the bass around in his face or something i don't understand how a picture doesn't <laughs> exist of that moment like <laughs> yeah yeah that's, yeah, that's true i mean it's like I, the cell I, phone I era a, it's crazy I did see a Vegas show, um, not on not on that. Um, that was the thirty one twenty one Vegas run. I did see a Vegas show on Live Out Loud, and um, I mean the security tends to be pretty hardcore uh, in Vegas compared to um, anywhere else. And Prince's security was always hardcore. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it could just be that it was one of those events where, it, where nobody was allowed to have a phone on them, which yeah. you know, those those well, things the happened. Recent- the recent 21 nights, sh- uh, sorry, the recent piano and a microphone shows, they were so strict on, on cell phones and mobile phones. Like they just, l- complete lockdown. They, w- they went around for like half an hour in the audience just making sure everyone knew there were signs everywhere. They were really, really strict. And obviously a few people managed to get things through. You see little leaks and bootlegs and whatnot. But it's such a shame. I remember thinking at these shows that some of the stuff that's happening here in front of us is some of the best stuff I've ever seen in Prince's entire career. And I'm like, nobody's capturing this. And yes. obviously, little little did I know, you know, that this was going to be his last sort of material and performances. But, you know, just unbelievable uh, moments. And I, I went to four of these shows, and they had two at the Sydney Opera House, um, and then they had uh, two in, an, in another theatre. Uh, so I went to four of these shows, and... Every show was a little bit different, but but the last shows that I saw, he did two of them in one night, and he was on fire. Like the other ones were okay, like he did good stuff, and I thought they were great at the time, but not really what I expected of the piano and a microphone. I was like, okay, he's just kind of playing a few songs, and okay, it's kind of cool. But the last night I saw him in both shows, it was like, aha, that's the prince that it's like he's never been better ever. Than wow. what I'm seeing right now. Mm-hmm. In particular, he did a version of "I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man" as a piano ballad, mm-hmm. and it was like, oh my god! And there were there, there were people around me uh, that were just so excited, and you know, a couple of the women in front of me were just almost <laughs> orgasming in their seats, and they were, just, and, and there was a guy who was almost on the same level, and it, like Prince would just saw through these notes and do things in a way, and people were just going, oh my god, at the end of every line, and it was just like, how good can somebody be with just a piano and their voice? He was unbelievable. It was like... Yeah, just an incredible and, live artist. So much I wouldn't... not captured. I would like to contrast that. Actually, this kind of goes well into the you know the live performances um, contrast kind of thing, and I'd like I, I kind of think that 
a Michael performance would never make you like a song that you might not have been into any more than the studio version. Whereas a Prince live performance, if, if, if you weren't a massive fan of a song, he might yeah. do it in a live way that made you a fan of that song. Cause that yeah. happened to me, you know, a few times. I mean, I was, I was, it's, it almost sounds, it's almost blasphemous to some people, but I was never massive on nothing compares to you for a long time. Like I didn't hate it, but it wasn't yeah. a, a favorite. Live, and then I saw it, um, it was two years ago in, in Birmingham and I cried. And yeah. <laughs> this is a song that like, I, I was never listened to like that much, mm-hmm. um, yeah. but there was just all so there. It was just all the emotion was there and he meant it, you know? Absolutely. Like that song live is just unbelievable. When he just starts with the opening chords of that song and, and the vocal, it's just, yeah, it's insane. And I think he did a duet of that at one of the shows I went to with Mary J. Blige. Unbelievable. Blimey. Uh, <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. Those 21 nights that he did in, in LA at the forum were so unbelievable because it was like the happening place i guess it was similar in london um mm, yeah. because mm-hmm. it was it was celebrity central it was like vips yeah. you know every night you know whitney houston was there it was just before she passed away a few months i think you know and uh gwen stefani was on stage stevie wonder mary j blige so many of these amazing artists getting up on stage and and singing with him and it was just incredible and 25 bucks for a ticket to see prince yeah. And what was interesting, though, is a lot of the VIP tickets, because it was he was doing so many shows, the shows during the week weren't selling out as well because they were like, you know, on a Tuesday or Wednesday night. So on the day, the VIP tickets, which were like two or three hundred dollars, would go on sale for twenty five bucks. So I went to like half of those shows. Most of the time I paid $25 and some of the time I was in the VIP section, you know, with, with, you know, all of these celebrities and, and, you know, hanging out and they're getting up on stage and it's like, what is going on? This is insane. And he just did the most amazing shows and performances. And yeah, it was just unbelievable. So let's, let's talk a bit though about, about Michael's live performances. Cause I think really he was at the top of his game you know, in his early years, you know, mm. like he, he he was on fire when he sort of, you know, I'd say, you know, getting into the Triumph tour and right through to probably mm. the Bad tour. Yeah, Michael officially like retired after the Bad tour. After the Bad tour, he'd been performing for about 20 years up until that point live. You know, he'd been the Bad tour. I think he performed 123 shows over a year yeah. and a half period, which is no joke. And traveling around the world, and he'd been performing you know, ever since he was a child. So up until that point, he'd performed for about 20 years. So he'd retired. You know, if you had a 30-year-old artist now who performed for 20 years, by the time they were 50, of course you're going to imagine them to kind of, you know, relax and take life easy. So, you know, shouldn't have come as any surprise to to, to anyone else that Michael Jackson wanted to retire by the end of the Bad Tour. But I saw him first, first time I saw him was uh, on the Bad Tour at Wembley Stadium. And again, I've got to kind of put you into my frame of mind where I was at the time and I was 15 years old Michael Jackson fan for about four or five years up that, up until that point and I always considered him to be it's really hard to explain because it, 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm a heterosexual guy but I always have to explain <laughs> because it's very difficult to explain but I always thought of Michael Jackson as being my first love we loved him so much we had so yeah. much love for him not yeah. in a sexual way just in a kind of you know we had so much respect for him he meant so much he was so dear to us 
So by the time we eventually saw him live for the first time, it was almost like a sexual experience. It was that the height would reach such a height, but that by the time we saw him for the first time, it was just like, you know, the most amazing experience. And obviously he ha- it happened to be while he was at his creative peak and at his kind of performing peak. And when he came, when he came in 1988, he looked slightly different to what he had looked on the first leg of the tour. So he, he'd yeah. filled out a bit by the time he came to London. So he was slightly bigger. You'd always had this kind of perception of Michael as being frail and small. You know, we knew Prince was about five foot one or five foot two. Madonna mm-hmm. famous, quite short. And you always imagined that Michael would be just the same. But when we first saw him, when he first took to the stage, I'm not sure if you guys are all familiar with how the bad tour begins, but, it's him and his four dancers and when we saw him it was late august or mid-august so it was already nighttime by the time he came onto the stage and they're standing on the middle of the stage and this bank of lights just lift up behind them so all you see are the five silhouettes and he looked massive he looked so huge in front of us and i think he's about five he was about five foot ten five foot eleven which firstly that surprised us we weren't expecting him to be that tall and that kind of physically imposing and, you know, you'd heard so much rubbish in the press leading up to him kind of taking to the stage when Wannabe started something that kicked in. The, if if Wembley Stadium had a roof, it would have kind of blown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the definitely, definitely the tour to see. So you're very, very, very lucky. Yeah, I mean, the noise, I mean, I'd never heard anything as loud. He just looked immaculate. And, mm. you know, it was the second leg of the tour, so it wasn't the first leg of the tour, so everything had been kind of, you know, tailored yeah, down to the wire by this stage. It's it's interesting because, myself included, everyone always talked about how, before we really saw decent, well, if you can call VHS decent, copies of the Bad Tour 88 and the Wembley shows or whatever, everyone's like, that's the holy grail, that is him at his peak. But once I actually saw that show, I actually realised that I prefer the the Australian slash Japan leg of the, the the 87 stuff, because I believe that that's when he was at his most pure. And that was the peak of him being completely pure. It was a hundred percent live, everything, the vocal, the whole thing was a hundred percent. The way he looked, I thought looked more natural and it, just yeah. everything about the way he sang and he was doing a lot of these songs that were just pure soul, like a lot of the Jackson stuff. It was basically a recreation of the Victory Tour without the brothers, with a couple of songs tacked on the end, Bad and Just Can't Stop Loving You. But it was just so pure. And the vocals on that and the way, like when he sings, you know, like the ad libs at the end of Rock With You. And he's like, I want to rock with you till the yeah. morning. And he goes into the big high note. The ad libs before rock with you coming out of um mm-hmm. I think it's, what is it coming out of uh she's out of my life is it or is it coming out of yeah she's out of my there, life on taps for... yeah yeah well that's that whole section and mm-hmm. just and you know amazing as much as i love 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 and another part of me on the second leg mm-hmm. of the tour the second leg introduced a lot more you know like sort of like manufactured kind of stage productions of some of the way the songs were done like thriller was done very differently and smooth criminal and and you know a little bit of you know the lip syncing thing coming in there mm-hmm. so not as pure but the, oh man those shows that he did in in 87 to me like that rivals anything prince ever did and you oh, know if you well, yeah, compare michael yeah, and prince uh, that's that's where you do it there's um there's, there's there's often it's often said that michael never really had um 
a great band and for a lot of tours that is true i mean i think even prince said that but i think if you're contrasting um an entertainer versus a more traditional um rock band then the most important person in in the set uh, apart from obviously michael is your musical director, director. and 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 for bad that was greg fillingaines and you know i mean greg's a legend so that's why i think it contributed massively to to that tour being considered his, his live uh, peak when you have i remember watching it and just seeing greg and this this guy's important in this uh, in this ensemble and uh, of course he played with stevie he's played with toto you know he was the right person at the right time to to help michael with, with that tour i think that what the interesting thing is about the bat tour overall is that there's not that many triatical attributes like that like he would use in history and dangerous like that kind of thing yeah. like it was more focused on the person that he was and how well he could like show you what his talent was and his singing most of it or even on like you said the japan legs of it everything of it was live and it was focused on his dancing and what he could do and then later on in his later on shows while he be well he started to get a bit older it was more about the triatical attributes around it as well like moving stages and things like that and like the tank and things were earth song and like the children on stage with heal the world it was not like that in his early years yeah that's very true i mean the the japanese leg of the tour it was, I mean, obviously it's fantastic. Um, Darren Hayes talks about it in detail because I think that was the first Michael Jackson concert he ever went to. And he's yeah. written about that in fantastic detail. And uh, But the second leg, I always preferred the second leg because Michael's voice was grittier by that stage because obviously he'd been on the road for about a year. And mm. there were more kind of moments where he was just on stage by himself. So another part of me, I always think of as a highlight of the show and it was yeah. slightly grittier he, he he was slightly what's the word i'm looking for he was slightly more of, of an adult performer at that stage than he was probably mm. earlier on the on on the first leg so and also the kind of um uh way the songs were performed so heartbreak hotel had, had been slowed down considerably by the second leg and you know there yeah. were a few, mm. a few pauses between verses and just the way he moved physically, he just moved fantastically mm. slower than the than the earlier leg. Um, it seemed the right the right speed because that was one of the issues I have with the Victory Tour is that everything was like Mickey Mouse, like it sped up all the songs. Like Billie Jean's just too fast to me compared right. to you know Motown Twenty Five, who was doing basically the record version, and it was so perfect. And I always imagined before I saw it the Victory Tour. I was like, wow, imagine seeing Billie Jean on the Victory Tour to be like the, right in the Thriller era and the height of that 1984 success. Um, but when you see it on the Victory Tour, it's like sped up version and and beat it and everything. It's almost like all the songs in the Victory Tour. They're just too fast, whereas... Yeah, they, they don't have room to tour. breathe sometimes. Yeah, he's more in the groove in the bad tour. Like, it's like yeah. he's kind of really in the groove and and everything just seems the right speed, whereas maybe Dangerous Tour, it kind of slowed down a bit too much and he dropped the keys of a bunch of songs and, yeah. you know... But Bad was, like, right in that sort of perfect sort of element, I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a real pity Victory never came to... The Victory Tour never came to London because they had, had been mooted... That it was, they were going to play Wembley Stadium for at least one night. But um, I mean, yeah, that would have been phenomenal to see. Is that the is that the only Michael Jackson or Jackson's tour that didn't go to London, the Victory Tour, the only major one? Because they came in, they did Destiny. Didn't no, they didn't come. They didn't come. No, they didn't come for the Triumph tour. Oh, the Triumph didn't go uh, either. So there was a bit of a gap there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was the only other one I think. But yeah. Um. So there was a gap between what 
78 till he came over in 87. But yeah, I mean, the first Michael Jackson concert I ever went to, I mean, on was I've, I've never been as excited about anything in my life as I was that night. And then, yeah, I, I, the, I agree with that. Yeah, the next time I felt that sort of height of excitement was the first night at uh, the O2 to go and see Prince yeah. because yeah. I'd waited 30 odd years because I'd yeah. missed so many opportunities. And that's the funniest story. I went with a friend of mine, Gavin, who's a real musical musicologist, and um, he writes a lot. I think he's written for The Enemy. He's written lots for you know the music press and no he you know he was my pusher my prince pusher he used to <laughs> whenever a new cd would come out whenever a kind of you know underground prince track would come out he would have it and i, I wouldn't have to go looking for it and we were having dinner at the o2 before the prince show like an hour or so before the prince show and I, I couldn't sit still. I was so nervous for some <laughs> ridiculous reason. I, I was so excited about, about, about the whole occasion. And we couldn't stop talking about it because he had never seen Prince at that stage either and had missed, he he actually missed that same One Night Alone uh, show that we could have seen at Hamsmith Apollo together, but we missed that together. Um, and we were in the restaurant and I ordered a burger and chips and he ordered a burger, and, uh, a veg- vegetarian burger and chips. Food came to the table. My food was perfect. His burger hadn't been cooked so he complained <laughs> to the kitchen staff and that delayed everything by another 20 minutes and by this stage i'm going crazy and i'm saying to him we need to take the food into the auditorium we need to go into the auditorium we can't sit here any longer <laughs> as, as we walked into our seats honestly it was about five minutes between us walking through the doors sitting down and then the big screens coming on uh and if you know how the the 21 night shows were performed that is kind of almost like basketball uh, screens above the stage. So they were kind of like a bank of four screens and they'd show this little video montage. And I've never been as excited since, since that night because it was just, I'd waited so long to see him. We'd gone through so much shit as fans, you know, he'd been kind of, you hadn't heard him on the radio for about, you know, 10, 15 years at that point. Mm. We hadn't seen a, a music video of his on uh, MTV or on, you know, he'd been pretty much blackballed again, like all the other great artists happened to have been. So for him to come back in such a triumphant manner, and I remember saying to Gavin, I said, you know, he deserves this. And, we, you know, we deserve it for hanging, you know, for staying on the ride. We could have, you know, we could have got off the ride anytime during that kind of 10-year hiatus or that kind of period where, you know, things had kind of, taking a turn for the worst. We didn't have to kind of stay stay on as Prince fans, but we did. And this was our reward. And I, I remember saying that to him. And on the video, on one of the videos, um, they were going through the montage of Prince songs. And one of the songs was 1999. And Gavin turned to me and he said, it's such a tragedy that he said he'd never play that song ever again. <laughs> and honestly, honestly, about 30 seconds later, Prince comes he out opened with it. He opens with 1999. I was there. I was at that yeah. show as well. <laughs> yeah. Me and Gavin were literally hugging each other at this stage. <laughs> I was I was at that exact show with oh, my friends, and, uh, and 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 when it came out to the PA, that intro, that "Don't worry, I won't hurt you." I was like, "What?" That he hasn't played the song for eight years. He said he was never going to play it. Is that the only night he played it? Is that the only night he opened with it? It's the only night he opened with it. Um, wow. I, I can't remember if if he it was in the set for other shows, but that was yeah. that was the the first appearance since yeah, yeah, the yeah. Uh, the rave concert. We were yeah, we were killing ourselves laughing because 
you know, we'd seen it on the video like 30 seconds prior to him coming out. <laughs> and Gavin, you know, Gavin, like I said, he knew his music. And he said, it's such a tragedy. He said, I didn't play the song. Straight away, that first time he played and we were just in hysterics by that stage. Yep. And, just, and, you know, and just years before, he, he played like at the, show, at the first show I went to, like he, we, we played the intro to that as a bit of a tease. So you get the 1999 intro and you'd be like, yes. And then he'd go into Baby, I'm a Star and he'd be like, okay, cool. But he wouldn't play the whole song. I think it was 2009 when I finally heard him play that song. So, yeah. So I just want to, I just want to break out for a second and talk a little bit about, you know, some of the prints. So we talked about Michael and what we think are his, some of his greatest live performances and tours. Like, and we're talking a bit about some of the shows we've seen with Prince, but what do you think about, you know, in, in terms of Prince's career as, as a live performer? Like, what do you feel are some of the, the more standout tours or shows that you sort of thought he did throughout his sort of early to sort of, you know, 80s to 90s career, I guess? The thing with Prince is that a lot of his best shows, his best performances, his best tours were not uh, officially released. Um, so most people wouldn't get the chance to, to see him. I mean, obviously, you know, now that he's died, the stuff on YouTube, people are discovering these things. Um, but his his officially released live performances don't necessarily um, capture his, his, his best performances. But there is one there's one exception, um, although it's 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 kind of middle ground because there was never an official uh, video release of it, but it was broadcast on TV, mm. and that is the Detroit uh, birthday show from 1986. Yeah, um, with the revolution, no, that good. is absolutely phenomenal and definitely uh, mm. you know one of the peaks uh, <laughs> live live wise. He was just having so much fun. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Well, it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting contrast between Prince and Michael is that when you talk to Michael fans, they say, what's your favorite tour? And when you talk to Prince fans, they talk about their favorite gig. Um, yeah. <laughs> because the way that the way that Prince toured was very different from the way that Michael toured in the sense that um, you could go and see Prince three times in a week and get three completely different shows. Um, so you can't talk about a Prince tour in a homogenous sense because it's not, it's not a Michael Jackson tour, which is like a, it's almost like a music box where you wind the key up and then it just does the exact same thing in the exact same way every single night. Um, I mean, even by, by the history tour, you know, he was actually even his, I love you's were rehearsed yeah. to split second timing you know so yeah. you know with with prince you can i can think of um you know the it, when i saw him you know i saw him twice at the 21 nights for instance at the o2 one gig was not that great and then the second gig was easily one of the top three concerts by any artist that i've ever been to in my life it was phenomenal and yeah. it just it would depend on his mood on the night. He had a great sense of humor. He was incredibly playful live performer. I think that's possibly why he stayed in love with live performance in a way that Michael didn't. I can imagine being Michael Jackson, why it would get tiresome performing the exact same concert 150 times in a row. Yeah. You know, it's not it's not difficult to see why somebody would get cheesed off with having to do that every night. And you know, we know that he didn't want to do the Dangerous Tour, he didn't want to do the History Tour, and he didn't really want to do This Is It either. Mm. Um, whereas Prince, I think, made it interesting mm. for himself. 
And he actually, the way he did that was he, he essentially copied the James Brown model. So James Brown's model was he had the band and the band was drilled and the band knew, say, 150 songs, maybe not yeah. that many for James Brown, probably that many for Prince, though. I think mm -hmm. across the 21 nights at the O2, he played over 200 different songs. Yeah, um, that's right. But the, with James, so he would have that band drilled, and then he would walk out on stage with no set list, and they mm -hmm. would, he would play whatever came into his head. And Prince did the same thing. He might have a few staples. The O2 shows had a few staples. But he would build a different show every night, and that keeps it interesting for him, and it keeps it yeah. interesting mm. for the audience as well. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, Prince, Prince complained about the Purple Rain tour for that exact reason, because the restrictions mm. of it being uh, a tour following a movie meant that he had to start he with Let's Go play. Crazy and end with, <laughs> with Purple Rain. Um, yeah. And, you know, following that, he, he, he there was... Never followed a you know restrictive model like that ever again. So. You know what? You know what? I think an interesting question would be like if you would put yourself in their shoes. Actually, what would you rather do? Would you rather like rehearse for one show, like one particular type of show, for months and months and months on end, and then repeating it for like a hundred and twenty times in like the time span of two three years, or would you want to do something completely different all the time with a band that is like solid and knows what you want to play, so that you just have to rehearse all these songs with that band? But, but most bands. Don't have the repertoire to do no. that. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That's true. That was that was the beauty of those twenty-one night shows, and because I went to so many, I went to like ten shows. I got to witness it firsthand. Like you'd go to mm -hmm. a show one night, and you're like, "What's the feeling in the room? What's yep. it going to be?" And he would come out in a different mood every show, and sometimes he'd come out with the lights down, and he'd just slowly slink around the stage, and you know just sort of move around a bit and crawl around on the floor sometimes and, and lie down and stuff and start singing, you know, a ballad or something. And then other times he'd come out, you know, with, with dance music, sex, romance or something. And it's sort of like, it was on, you know, and every time he'd come out, he'd be in a different mood and you could just tell that he was feeling it. Sometimes he'd walk around the stage with the band just jamming for like five minutes before he decided which song was actually going to lead into. Um, and it was incredible just to see the diversity. And that's why I went so many times because I thought, oh, I wonder what I'll hear if I go on this night. And and then you don't go on a night and you're like, oh, he played yeah. God. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah. I well, missed yeah. <laughs> I remember one show uh, on, on 21 Nights in London where he opened with Purple Rain. It was like, oh, I just want to get this out of the way so I can yeah. play, play what I want. Yeah. And then other times he had, it seemed like he had, you know, absolutely no uh, care in the world that there was 25,000 people in, in the arena. Um, and, and I remember one 21 Nights show in London, he sat down, um, the band, band left the stage and he sat down with a guitar and he played A Thousand Hugs and Kisses, um, yeah. which at the time was a 10, 15 year old outtake from Diamonds and Pearls that nobody knew. <laughs> Maybe yeah. a dozen people out of the 25,000, including myself, knew it. Of course, later on, he, you know, just last year, he resurrected the, that song finally. Um, but but 25,000 people in the stadium did not know an unreleased song from the Diamonds and Pearls sessions. And he just mm -hmm. sat there and sang it. And he said things like, you know, um, I'm I'm playing this song for me. This is what I want to play. Yeah, and let's yeah. let's talk a little bit about encores because those shows in particular, like he he did like four or five encores on some nights, and he would go out and everyone knew like usually most artists do this the rehearse sort of oh go off pretend you know I've finished the show come back on. 
but he would come back on like sometimes 20 minutes later and it's been three encores yeah. and they've turned yeah. the lights on and everyone's out in the car park and then yeah, he comes the back out again <laughs> and he starts playing another sort of 20 minute set then he disappears and you go well that's definitely it and we learned pretty early on that you pretty much stick around until you get kicked out of the stadium because there were some times where he just kept coming out four or five times in total uh, or six times even. And when you thought there is no way he's coming back, sometimes <laughs> I think the longest was maybe half an hour and he came back out. One of them, he even came back out and because they'd taken down all the rigging and pretty much the <laughs> stage was all dismantled almost, Blimey. he came out as the encore and he rode his bicycle around the stage. <laughs> that was his yep. encore because he, he used to ride the bike from the little backstage to the underneath the stage. It was the big love mm-hmm. symbol stage. So he'd use the, a bicycle to sort of ride between to get onto under the stage so that was his encore that night he came out there was the gear was turned off the pa was shut down and he rode his bicycle around the stage about, about two or three times and went off and that was it it was great and all the fans were just kind of following him it was amazing at, at, at one show i saw the um the security had gone into the out of the out of the hall to to deal with all the people that were leaving and he came back out and there was no security so we just jumped through the barriers of the sections that we were in and right down to the front yeah. um, for the for like that the was, last three songs that, that happened all the time because half the people had left and you know <laughs> you can go down and get a better I, I found spot. out um, i found out um through some people working on some of the shows that he was getting fined for breaking local curfews a lot of the time when he was doing <laughs> yeah. that and he was just like well i still want to play so i don't care yeah. well the yeah. coco gig the coco gig charlie learned a valuable lesson that night well, actually, it's a lesson never I, hadn't, I hadn't learned from the O2 because it happened at the O2. Um, I was there the night uh, he brought Elton John on for one of the um, encores, which was lamentable. And then um, he did a couple more. Uh, they did the long and winding road, and it oh, was a long and winding performance. <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah. But so he he did a couple of encores. That was one of them. And then the lights went up and it was probably a good 10, 15 minutes. The lights were up. People were leaving. We finally said, oh, he's obviously not coming back. And uh, we left. And then we we were just walking along the corridor out of the O2. And we suddenly hear the kick drum start. (laughs) And he came back and he did A Love Bazaar and Chelsea Rogers. And... um, and we were trying to go back in and the security were going, no, no re-entry, no. But um, eventually there were so many of us that we just uh, we just pushed past them and legged it down to the front. Um, awesome. And then I did the exact same stupid thing at Coco where he did about five encores mm. and then he went off for absolutely ages and I thought, oh, okay, he's done. And then I walked outside and then heard through the door the chords to how come you don't call me anymore, yep. which is one of my all time oh, favorite print songs. And I couldn't get back in. It was like, Oh no. And then he did, you got the look mashed up with James Brown's. I can't stand it, which mm-hmm. was gutting to miss that as well. Well, uh, you know, you were at the gig at the roundhouse about two or three hours prior to me and dips getting into the second show where he played, uh, Joni Mitchell's, um, case of you. A case of um, you, yeah. which you know is, is you know if you're a Joni Mitchell fan, that's like the Joni Mitchell song. And you and told me that, like, oh, well, surely he'll play it. Surely he'll play it in the second gig. Of course, he didn't. <laughs> and he hit a note during that song, which was just 
like spiritual I don't, I don't know how he did it i mean he hit a note which is higher than i've ever heard anybody sing <laughs> it was just <laughs> unbelievable there is a bootleg circulating is kind of a really terrible um audience recorded boot but that gig that the roundhouse 2014 show one was the greatest concert i've ever been to in my life hands down he i was right down the front i was like maybe third row center stage uh he was like maybe 10 to 15 feet away from me for most of the show um he played two hours because he had a second show to get in afterwards but it was uh the first half was wall-to-wall hits and then the second half was more kind of fan favorites b-sides but he started playing purple rain on the piano which he'd been doing a lot on that tour and he did it when we saw him at coco and it was clear that he was intending to do it on the piano, maybe do two verses and then abandon it, which he'd been doing for much of that tour. But there was something about the way the audience responded. He kind of, he walked to center stage and he was looking at the guitar, not not in a coquettish kind of uh, playful way where he was kind of having a joke with us, but you could see that he was... He was contemplating whether he was going to pick the guitar up or not. And then eventually he went over and picked it up and just started kind of noodling about and playing like blues riffs and and sort of a very, very, very slow burning solo that you didn't think was going to go anywhere. And then the audience all just started singing, you know, the <laughs> line and it, he just the the louder the crowd got the more intense his guitar <laughs> work got and it was such a long performance it was like a 13 minute performance i think of purple rain stuff like that in the end and it just built to this incredible crescendo and i i'm not even a particular fan of purple rain in the same way that a lot of michael jackson fans are not particular fans of billy jean just because you've heard it a squillion and one times and so whenever he would start playing Purple Rain, I'd kind of go, oh, here we go. But <laughs> it was the, that performance, it just blew my mind. I mean, I, I, I cried. It was like wow. unbelievable. And what the incredible thing was that he started running around the stage with his eyes were like wide open. And he was going, something's going on in this room. He was shouting at Donna and... Uh, Ida, he was shouting at them, something's going on. Can you feel what's going on in the room? And then if you listen to the bootleg of the second show, he talks about the first show. He talks about playing Purple Rain in the first show and how he had a spiritual experience um, Mm. and how he will remember that performance of Purple Rain for the rest of his life. And it was just... It, it was just one of the greatest moments of my life. That show yeah, was yeah. phenomenal. I've, I've definitely some... seen him have moments like that where he's just, you know, people said from the beginning of his career all the way to the end that the, there were moments where he seemed possessed, possessed by the music, mm. which is completely taken over him. And, um, yeah. you know, certain shows that happened, other shows it, it, it didn't as much. But when it happened and it really happened, it was as charlie says an emotional thing to to see 
And you only really knew it, like, you know, you have to go to a lot of shows to, to really know that because I know people who have been to maybe one or two print shows and that, how do they know if that was one of those shows or not? Because they say it was amazing and the best thing they've ever experienced because it probably is. But if you've been to a lot of shows, you can actually tell, you go, well, okay, this is, this is a good show. Mm-hmm. But then there are other shows where you're like, like, you know, the one I was talking about, the last shows that I saw where you're just going, oh, like, yeah. oh, oh, aha, I get it. And oh my God, this is amazing to a level that last night I thought was brilliant, but this is just mm-hmm. sublime and heavenly and spiritual in a way that you just think he is one with music and connecting with the audience and you could feel it in the room. Um and you know, mm. it was just—it was an amazing thing. Uh, I would um, have to say that, um, that that my favorite show of of the one, all the ones that I saw was the first leg of of Hit and Run in London, where it was the one-off um, shows in in 2014. Uh, a lot of people criticised um, Third Eye Girl, and and perhaps rightly so for for not being that comfortable playing funk songs because they were you know they were rock band Hannah is yeah. is a rock drummer she is not a funk drummer um the only the only member of the three that was really competent in funk was Ida Donna was not a funk guitar player she's a rock guitar player so on some of the shows they they understood that especially on these one-off shows and they would do a pure rock show and the, the September the, the the hit and run uh, Shepherd's Bush show that I saw, uh, it was announced that same day on Radio Two. Drove down to London to to get in. It turned out that the tickets were just ten pounds on the door, which was just like what. <laughs> and 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 he was on absolute fire for the for the entire show, particularly right at the end. It was the final um, encore, and I wrote a review of the show that. that Prince actually used my review um, in in a video from the show. Uh, I think Charlie, I think your tweet was in that was in a similar video. I don't know if it was the same show. Um, yeah, the video for Chaos and Disorder, I think. That's right, Chaos and Disorder video. But uh, the the final uh, the final encore, he did something in the water, and uh, then he came back out and he did just like three or four just heavy rock songs in a row. There was Chaos and Disorder, uh, I like it there, and Bambi, uh, and he was just on. Like, absolute fire and i I saw i saw the camera there was a cameraman filming it and uh the cameraman i saw him zoom in on prince's fingers on the fretboard and the cameraman just had the biggest grin on his face he couldn't (laughs) believe what he was seeing um and then i I turned around at one point and i looked up at the balcony and i saw george clinton i thought ah, i see what's happening prince is really trying to impress his uh one of his (laughs) idols so he was really going for it but uh that was that was probably my my favorite show that i saw Sky. You 
Hi, I'm Andy Healy, author of the MJ101 series, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. So what, what we're going to do is we're going to sort of start wrapping this uh, part one of this roundtable up a little bit. Um, and we've been talking a lot of, about Prince. We're getting a little carried away with the, with the Prince here, <laughs> but that's for the benefit of all you Michael fans out there who we, we've, we've heard us talk enough about Michael on the show. Um, here's a little bit of bonus, you know, Prince content for you. Um, so hopefully it might inspire you to sort of uh, get into it 
Prince uh, sort of thing in a way to check out some of his his catalog and some of his performances. Um, but it's probably a good good time to sum up um, in the live performance thing. You know the differences between Michael Jackson and, and Prince in terms of live performance because we didn't really quite touch on that yet. So it's probably a good way to sort of round this discussion up in terms of you know how you feel they differed as live performers in terms of what they presented. So does anyone want to kind of kick that off? Yeah, I would say. Um... I would say that I, I saw I saw Michael um, the one time, and obviously I saw Prince a lot more times, uh, and both are among my best memories for, for very different reasons. But I would say that I don't I don't really feel bad for not seeing Michael more than once because, as we touched on, his show was largely always the same. Whereas if I missed a Prince show, which never really happened, if I had the opportunity to see it, I would feel very very down about it. Um, and what I really, what I really wish that Michael had done would be to just make a lot of changes to his live show. You know, the idea of him just sitting down on a stool and singing human nature with an acoustic guitar player or something like that would have just been absolutely phenomenal. And he had all these options, um, that he could have done in a live performance context that, that just didn't, that just didn't happen because there was this sort of singular focus on this huge theatrical um, production, which ended up being to his, his detriment. But as as we kind of sort of talked about before, it's not unreasonable to suggest that he really was sick of live performance in general, and that was why he didn't seem to have much interest in, in changing the format. Yeah, I mm. think um, I think the the main difference is that even if you just look at Prince in the last few years of his life, uh, the last two things that he did as a live performer were firstly to go out on tour for the first time ever in his career with a rock trio as a band, and then to go out on tour for the first time ever doing a solo acoustic piano show. So this was a guy who was in his mid-50s. He'd been in the industry since the 70s, and he was still doing stuff that he'd never done before. He was always looking for something new and exciting and different and challenging. Whereas Michael, as you say, Casey, basically became stuck in this kind of Groundhog Day scenario where every tour was basically the previous tour, but a bit worse. So he would lip sync more and more of the set list the uh, choreography would become more and more rigid and rehearsed. He would look worse and worse. He would look apathetic. I mean, if you look at a lot of the history footage, he just looks like he's barely even present in the moment, to be honest. And and it's not really a criticism because fans get pissed off when I say this, but it's, it's not a criticism because we know now, we know absolutely... He didn't want to be there. We know from testimony in court cases, which have happened since he passed away, that he was being fed drugs to get him on stage. We know that if he expressed to some to somebody in charge that he didn't want to go on stage, he might be, for instance, thrown against a wall. I think Karen Fay testified that she had witnessed on the Dangerous Tour, Michael was drugged. And then under the influence of those drugs, somebody suggested he was not perhaps in the best state to be going on stage. And then he was thrown against a wall and said, you will go on stage. 
you know, so this, you know, is is not a criticism when I'm saying that the show has got worse and worse, because if somebody forced me to go and do 150 concerts I didn't want to do, then I wouldn't do a very good job, you know, because mm. I don't want to be there. But I think, you know, Michael's peak, in my opinion, was was probably the Destiny tour through to the Bad tour. Mm. And yeah. that peak was incredible there were flaws as you say the bands generally were not great i think the triumph band was fantastic and Mm. that was the only time he performed live with a horn section but i i do think that uh his peak was short-lived and it was he didn't make the best of his peak because he basically kept doing the same thing over and over again Mm. with prince i feel like he was at his peak for decades i think there was a lull in the mid to late nineties where he kind of did disappear up his own backside slightly and perhaps did go a bit too far down the, I'm not playing any hits route. And then, you know, the, the, the live, the live band stuff suffered because a lot of it was uh, pre-record. There was a lot of kind of hip hoppy DJ bullshit that he was doing. Um, but I mean, if, if you look at Prince, basically, even if you just look at Prince live, Prince is a live act from 1999, the year, up to 2016. I can't think of a period between those dates when really he was way past his commercial prime, when he was not performing well. He performed phenomenally. And I, I think part of the reason is because he did... He did make an effort to make it interesting for himself. I, I totally get that Michael didn't want to do it, but part of the reason Michael didn't want to do it was probably because he was performing within these incredibly rigid confines, mm. even when he did want to do it. And, you know, I'm a journalist. I work at a newspaper. If I had to go to the newspaper every day and write the same five stories verbatim, I would not be a very happy journalist. You know, the, yeah. you know, if Sam had to go to work and design the same poster every day, he would get sick of it. So, you know, you do kind of wish that Michael would have switched it up. And there are so many songs, so many fantastic songs Michael had that he never performed live. And just so many kind of missed opportunities, really. I think I think I think what Jamin says um, about um, this show in particular appealing to Michael Jackson fans who are fans because of his music. I think that is a very important thing to to pick out because people who were fans of Michael Jackson as a pop star and not focused on music, they wouldn't care about seeing the same show over and over again. Uh, and I think that's why we're able to to discuss that in in such a way. And I think there was maybe um, the balance tipped a, a little bit too far towards that you know admittedly massive section of of the fan base who who the focus on music is not their first priority i sort of see michael as a recording artist who focused a lot in his later career because he was very much a live artist from the beginning of his career you know up until sort of you know bad i sort of think he he was a recording artist who was trying to create artistry in the studio and then had to figure out, right, how do I present this in a live format? And a lot of the time, the type of material he was doing didn't always translate, which is why, you know, it may have been sort of staged in a particular way or lip synced and things like that, because it didn't always translate. Um, so it, it's almost like Michael wanted to make albums and art. And this is my 
offering to the world. And if he was going to do a live performance, I almost feel like he wanted to do one live performance and say, right, that is my live performance of this, of this material. That's my art. This is for everybody. But then he had to go around and do it, that same thing, like we're saying to every country in the world. Whereas Prince differs in that he, he, he would just want to make live music. And that's really where his focus was. He, his philosophy was like, I have to write the song in order to go on stage and play it. So I need to yeah. create music yeah. that I can go out and play because that's what I really love doing. Whereas I feel like Michael, particularly in his later career, was more focused on creating masterpieces in the studio and then yeah. had to think about, do I have to go out and perform this? How am I going to do that? What are the logistics yeah. of that? How do I put it together with these songs that have got hundreds and hundreds of multi-track layers and instruments and effects yeah. and you um you, you you absolutely cannot be afraid of flaws in a live musical performance and i think that michael was very afraid of any flaw um yeah. i think it was one of the members of the revolution or, or jill jones or one of prince's uh, close associates that said that prince would say if you make a mistake make it twice that's what he would say and <laughs> um, you know so that's and that's that's very important in a live context where i think maybe it was to do with the you know the tabloids or whatever where if michael had a flaw in a performance he felt that it would get picked to death and as such things became very rigid there's that bit in um in 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 this is it where he says to uh, uh the keyboard players had played the song like i wrote it and lots of people <laughs> applauded that and they said oh yeah you know he wrote it one way and it should be played that way yeah. but actually i think the band should have complete freedom to play a song in any way that they see fit yeah. and that's what prince's bands were always like you can actually see the the keyboard player you're talking about was the band leader michael bearden and you can see his frustration mm-hmm. in that segment because yeah, yeah. michael it's like let me do my job well michael actually they're they're doing the way you make me feel they're Cursing the way you make me feel, and Michael starts vocalizing this ad-libbed thing that he'd never done before in the song. Mm-hmm. And Michael Bearden was like, "Well, let's let's weave that in there. Do you want to weave that in there?" And Michael just shuts yeah, him down. Good. No, no, no whatever like, the record's yeah. doing, we're doing whatever the yeah. record's doing. I think because um, you know because of the media always picked on Michael a lot, like just because of who he was, that probably made him quite insecure as well. And I think because of insecurity, you start doubting yourself about a lot of other things. And then mm. with that came the fact that he was a massive, massive perfectionist. So I think wherever, even if there was a mistake at the show, like, for example, that time when he was doing, um, I think it had, was some kind of show that was like a royal show somewhere. What what show was that royal again? Brunei, Can someone perhaps. Me? Dubai. Yes. When Seda kind of like, or the singer that was there at the time, kind of like took his verse and I just can't stop loving you. And yeah. his response was like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, that's my verse. <laughs> and so yeah, you could exactly. kind of tell that he was really like really a perfectionist in that kind of way yeah. and i think most of that probably came from first of all him being an artist from a very very young age and always like being expected to be the best of the best of the best yeah. and that people saw him like that and on the other end because he was already getting picked on so he was like i do not want people to pick on me on like things that i can actually do really well so i have to do them perfectly and the exact <laughs> same all the time the other thing I think we need to sort of take into account as well is that, um, you know, Michael Michael was the guy who was trying to strive for, as we said, these massive theatrical productions. And they, in- they included things like incredibly complex 
uh, routine, like choreography dance routines that had to take place at certain times during the show. Yeah, and then obviously those kind of routines make you feel really tired. So if you want to do a routine like that and you want to sing at the same time, you're obviously going to sound a bit out of breath at times. Well, uh, yeah, potentially, but also it restricts you in terms of what you can do at other times during the show because you know you've got to do Dangerous Here with the 20 dancers and you know you've got to do... Um, you know, they don't care about us with the dance troupe behind you. And then then automatically when, once you start including those eight or ten songs that include all of that, your show becomes naturally restrictive because you're trying to recreate what's in the music video. Or So it was kind of like a self-defeating scenario that he was getting himself into by always people people throw um, people th- yeah. People throw around throw around this term perfectionism like it's a good thing, and I always take that to task because mm. as I always I always go by the phrase that perfection is the enemy of progress, um, and I think at times it, you know it, it at times it obviously you know worked for Michael in selling more records than anyone sold ever in the history of anything, and of course that's true, but at the same time it created a lot of restrictions if you go by that method of always trying to improve on everything, mm. you know Prince. Prince did not care about perfectionism. I remember, I think it was Susan Rogers, his engineer, was talking about how she she made a mistake in in mixing a song while he was or engineering a song. I think it was um, was it Dorothy Parker? I think it was Dor- or it was something off Sign of the Times. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it was If I Was Your Girlfriend. She um, she had uh, she'd made a mistake on the mixing console to where there was a little bit of distortion uh, going on and the vocals a little bit distorted, and she expected that. Prince, Prince had finished his vocal. She expected that he would come in and 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 she would tell him what happened, and he'd get really angry. But actually, he said something like, "Oh, it was meant to be," and he left it on the record. Yeah. Wow, that's incredibly similar to um, James Brown. So James Brown, uh, he would teach his band the song, and then the first time they played it would often be the cut that was released on the single even if there were mistakes in it. And there are quite a few very famous James Brown songs which have mistakes in them. But if uh, if the band queried it, he would say the first take is God, the second take is man. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that was something Michael did as well, of, of course. I mean, Black or White, for example, is his scratch vocal. It's like one mm. vocal and one take. Yeah. And I think 3T mentioned on uh, his uh, contribution to I Need You, that was recorded in one take as well. I should say about his live performances, though, they did become slightly robotic and mechanical, but I remember up until the Dangerous Tour, the reaction of the audience was still incredible. I mean, he, he could still get charge a crowd like no yeah. one else. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I yeah. When, you know, when we went to, I think it was the first night of the Dangerous Tour at Wembley Stadium, and he exploded at, I mean, yeah, we look at them and the theatrics of it now and it kind of looks all a bit kind of cliched and a bit old. But when he first explodes out of the stage following the kind of um, film montage, the Carmina Burana film montage that they played, again, you've got to imagine this is pitch black nighttime in London. That Carmina Burana uh, uh, music is kicking in. The montage is, you know, going crazy and the crescendo is building. And then suddenly Michael explodes out of the out of the mm. stage to the sound of the kind of Black Panther roar. Mm. And he stood there for two minutes without yeah. singing. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean Michael was just going, so visual in everything he did. Well, the thing and, is, yeah, I mean, yeah. I do wonder about his, the kind of repetitive nature of those shows and whether, well, we know he, well, he, rec- he released the, the Dangerous uh, tour as a concert DVD, yeah. and whether he was re- he, whether he had plans to record all of these tours as films. Hence, there was could you know everything could be continued 
mm. and seem seemingly cut together and spliced together from a number of shows because every show was almost identical. Um, and he did kind of perform in a way as if everything was going to be filmed and recorded for posterity. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there's the performance of Michael at Motown 25, for example, where he's the only artist who kind of consulted with the cameramen and the directors. So, for example, when he's singing and he's, talk, you know, the lyric is uh, about the baby, the eyes were like mine. He turns his head and the camera is there, like focused on his yeah. focused on his face because he'd been consulting with the directors and the producers, whereas none of the other artists had, had, because Michael was, you know, he was always imagined himself as a kind of actor in a film. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think, I think he like, understood, I think he understood that level of visualness and, and, and great editing, perhaps more than any other um, pop artist. I mean, if you look at the way the cuts are put together in the beginning of Moonwalker, it's, yes, it's yes. very, very good. It's, 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 it paints, um, yeah, absolutely. you know, a picture that is potentially not the entire picture, but it uh-huh. gets the desired uh, effect. effect. And exactly. we, we kind of, we look yeah. at things in, in this age now and we compare them to, to everything else that's available. And so we can easily, you know, criticize the history tour or whatever for being all playback vocals and et cetera. But at the time when you hadn't seen a lot of stuff to compare it to you would still massively enjoy it on that night that you were there and i think yeah it's, e- it's easy it's easy to lose sight of that fact i mean the, seeing the history tour was definitely still one of the best days of my life despite all the many criticisms that you can mm-hmm. yeah. throw at it now and um, michael's shows were so visual like michael put on a spectacle that you wouldn't want to take your eyes off for a second mm-hmm. and i think the difference between michael and prince in one way is that michael did a visual show that you had to sort of just take it in. Whereas I feel like in a print show, you could probably close your eyes and just feel and listen to the music more so than you ever would at a Michael show. If, I mean, obviously Prince had his sort of moments as well, but it was so much about the music with Prince that I remember, and I did this on several occasions, just closing my eyes and listening to the music. And then you'd open your eyes and there's prints in front of you and you just pinch yourself yeah you can absolutely absolutely do that and that's proven by the fact that bootlegs of print shows are so enjoyable to listen to yeah, whereas you yeah, wouldn't absolutely. listen to yeah. an you audio just... bootleg of the history tour you just well, wouldn't. even 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 for example the bad uh, live album that the crooks at the michael jackson estate released um <laughs> it's, it's it's very difficult to listen to you know it's it's you know it's there's a huge visual a element of, that's yeah there's a without actually seeing him moving and dancing and understanding yeah. what move goes where it's not an enjoyable listening experience yeah. but also uh, going back to michael being visual and trying to convey the atmosphere of his concerts in film if you've seen the another part of me video which he worked on obviously and he was very instrumental in getting it filmed on film as yeah. opposed to video just look at the editing of that and then yeah. compare it to spike lee's editing of the same song in the Bad 25 documentary. And Spike Lee, you know, is a celebrated film director. It pales in comparison to Michael's original yeah. release, which Absolutely. just makes it, everything seem so much more exciting and dynamic. Yeah. Um, and also, if you look at The Legend Continues, uh, The Legend Continues film that Michael worked on, and there's the performance of Heartbreak Hotel in there. And am I, I'm yeah. right in imagining that's from the Yokohama show, right? It is, yeah. Yep. But, they've, so, but they've spliced in Australian oh, yeah. fans instead of the Japanese fans. Yes, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. correct. Japanese fans but, who, were very, who were very conservative, it, and they, you know, most yeah. of them sat through the whole show. The Brisbane fans were going absolutely ballistic. 
Um, yeah. So Michael, they've, he's like, no they've hyped it up a little bit. They've, they've added yeah. a few sort but of shots. Great in there that. Up, but, but there's the, a great the science for that. If you look at the original, like it's still, uh, it's one of my favorite performances actually is, is that Heartbreak Hotel one. Um, sorry guys, we're going to have to kind of like wrap this up a little bit here because everyone's getting excited here. We could go on forever and ever. <laughs> we do have a part two coming though, so that uh, we'll be exploring some more ideas. So for now, we're going to sort of uh, say thank you to all and, uh, and uh, farewell. Um, we will be back with part two of this. So tune in for part two of this episode where we'll be talking more about some of our personal experiences and interactions with, with both Michael Jackson and Prince, uh, as well as you know, the cultural impact of, of both of these entertainers. Um, and also will lead into you know, the legacy of each artist after their passing uh, and various reflections on each. So yeah, do we want to just say a quick thank you to all everyone. Thank you for being on the show. Oh, no yeah, thank you so much for having us. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, that was part one of the Prince and Michael Jackson roundtable discussion. I hope that you all enjoyed that. And just again, a reminder, please tune in to part two, which will be the follow-up episode, episode 42. We're also really interested in hearing from you about this new format, the roundtable episode. So we would love to hear from you. Email us at themjcast at icloud.com. Let us know what you think about us splitting a really long discussion over two shows, having it in multiple parts. Yeah, and also just the format in general. Like, did you like that we got rid of the news and just had one topic that we focused in on? Did you like that we had six participants instead of just Q and I? You know, we'd love to hear your thoughts around all of that because that'll that'll really help us choose the direction of where we're going in the future as well with our show. Um, so yeah, lots of fun doing that episode and can't wait for part two to come out. We played some pretty good songs on that show, I thought. Uh, we had a Michael Jackson song kicking things off with Another Part of Me, Dance Extended Mix, one of my favorite MJ songs. And as you heard, one of Paul Black's favorites too. So it's great to hear that uh, in an extended format. We also played one of uh, my absolute all-time favorite Prince songs. It's a B-side classic, She's Always In My Hair. And also a great print song that Casey Rain suggested called Space Acoustic Mix. So thank you for tuning in. I hope that you've hit subscribe. You can go directly to themjcast.com and hit subscribe from there or search for us on a podcast application of your choosing. You can find us at The MJ Cast across social media with Twitter as The MJ Cast, Facebook, the MJ Cast, Instagram, the MJ Cast, and over on YouTube, we upload the audio of our shows 
without the music elements, and that is youtube.com forward slash plus the MJ cast. We're over at Tumblr, themjcast.tumblr.com. And like I just mentioned earlier, we'd love to hear feedback from you and your thoughts on the show. So email us at themjcast at icloud.com. Now, we know you love being kept up to date with news and discussion all around Michael Jackson. And if you want the same sort of things for Prince, you've got to consider getting into the Violet Reality. The Violet Reality can be found at facebook.com slash thevioletreality, twitter.com slash aviolatreality, and instagram.com slash theviolatreality. Casey and Kim do a phenomenal job with the Violet Reality. You've got to get into it. Uh, also, you can find the participants of this show on Twitter. Uh, Charles Thompson is at C.E. Thompson. That's T-H-O-M-S-O-N, no P. You can find Samar at the M-J-A-P. Casey is at Casey Rain. Kim is at Kim Camellia. That's K-I-M-C-A-M-I-L-I-A. And as well, if you want to follow me, you can follow me at Jamin Bull. Uh, but I tend to tweet a lot more from our um, official account from the MJ cast. So that's at the MJ cast as well. Uh, Paul Black, unfortunately, you can't really contact him because he's... He's the nowhere man. <laughs> he's, the no- he's not really on any social media. But I'm sure if you want to send him a message or an email or something, just send it to the MJcast at iCloud.com and we'll find a way to get that uh, feedback to Paul Black. Um, so yeah, there we go. That's our first episode, first roundtable episode for the MJ cast. So make sure to tune back in in two weeks' time for episode 42, Michael Jackson and Prince Roundtable Part 2. Uh, it's a very, very exciting episode and lots of fun, heated kind of discussion. And uh, yeah, enjoy your fortnight ahead and keep Michaeling. Michael on. Jay Cast.